where's the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And a swing and a miss. How about Mats? Four strikeouts, first five hitters faced. Fifth strikeout. Savala is retired. Elvis Andrews is coming up. As Remyard is down on strikes for the second time. Swing and a miss. A changeup. It's been a great pitch, and he's matched his season high with seven strikeouts. What a job it was by Steven Matz, though. A much needed great starting performance. Much needed for Steven Matz. That is the perfect way to define that last outing for him before the All-Star break. Welcome everyone into BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We can say it now that the cat is out of the bag or the baby is out of the mom. BK had a baby. Oh, Not that you all didn't know, but that is why BK has not been here last week. And that is why BK will not be here this week, he is enjoying uh, being a new dad. He, along with Kara and baby Luca, so congrats to them. And uh, I hope they're enjoying this time off. Same. I'm not going to lie. I did not know what you were referring to at first when you said, let's let the cat out of the bag. I was like, we didn't talk about this before the show. Uh, well, Tanner's already on I like did, high I did, anxiety. I didn't know BK was expecting a baby. Just to be clear, I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> B- Tanner's already at high anxiety level, like oh. a number nine. So anyway, I can make him skeeve on a little bit more throughout the day today. I call that a win. Alex, it's not going to take much today for there to be some heated arguments between you oh, two. Oh, no. I can already look at look at his face. And I could say that because on our live YouTube channel at 101 ESPN SDL, his face is already saying I'm ready to fight. Oh, man. But there's one thing he can't fight me on because I'm going to agree with him here. That was a really good start for Steven Matz. And he needed it. If anybody on this Cardinals roster needed a big day, it was Steven Matz. Because with Wayno's injury, with Matthew Libertor being optioned back down, and frankly, without you having other starting options, you need help in that rotation. And Steven Matz provided it. Five and a third innings, two hits, one run, which was an unearned run caused by an error. We'll talk about that. But the, yeah, but the part for me, nine strikeouts. Nine strikeouts and 75 pitches for Steven Matz. And this was an opportunity for him. Now you go into the All-Star break with Ali Marmol and company saying, we got to give him another start. But it's not a guarantee he's in the rotation because we've seen this before. Steven Matz have a good start and then Steven Matz have five bad starts. But for him, 
that was about as a much needed start as you can ask. And for the Cardinals, hopefully that is a sign of things to come to add some swing and miss and somebody who can hit the damn strike zone in their rotation. Look, Steven Matz, when he was right last year, was a guy that had some swing and miss. In fact, I think he had the highest strikeout percentage on the team outside of when I think they acquired Quintana, who then had his shoot up through the roof. Steven Matz is a guy that does have some swing and miss when he is right. And as you saw early on in the year, he was not right. He was one of the worst pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. But they sent him to the bullpen to work on things, and you saw that pan out last night. The sinker was great. It was up almost two miles an hour in terms of its average velo, had the changeup working, and also the curveball looked better. Remember, early in the year, he had said that the curveball was lost, and he was basically a two-pitch pitcher, and he was just getting hit around. So that was a really encouraging sign to see Steven Matz bounce back and get into the rotation. He played really well in the bullpen. Had it not worked out last, yesterday, I think he probably still would have been in the rotation, but at least you saw he could work in this the pen. This season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But at least you could you saw that he could work in the pen. Right. But if he's able to bounce back and show that he is capable of returning to kind of quote-unquote starter form, that is so big for this Cardinals team because now you can go into the offseason going, okay, we know Matt's can get back in the rotation for whatever reason. That was just a weird month or two, however long it ended up being that he was struggling in the rotation. You go into the offseason knowing, okay, we've got two spots filled. We only got to fill three. Rather than looking for four and going, what are we going to do with the Steven Matt's contract? We're going to have to put him in the bullpen, it looks like. No. So, again, this was such a big start for him. And, look, he's got to continue it. I'm not saying he's, all right, that one start, lock him into this rotation for next year. Yeah. No, he's got to prove it after the All-Star break. But that was very encouraging because he had swing and miss, had command of all of his pitches, and he wasn't even built up. And that was the most impressive part was that he he threw about where I thought he would in pitches, but he still would get through five and a third with that. If he was built up, he'd probably go seven innings in that start oh, yesterday. Yeah. I mean, you had 57 strikes on 75 pitches. At one point, it felt like it. I think I think I remember Kip Cherry Carey saying it was like 45 pitch strikes on 55 pitches. Or so. the man hit the strike zone every single at bat, and that's what you want from Stephen Matz. But what you said is where I was at when he walked off the mound. Awesome start. But that does not lock you into the rotation for the remainder of this year or next year. Because you have to build on this. You have to go out there and continue to show that the swing and miss stuff, the ability to hit the strike zone, really the ability not to blow up when things get out of hand. And they got out of hand yesterday on Steven Matz, but he found a way to calm it down. That's what you need in this rotation. And for $11 million next season... I would much rather be spending $11 million to put Steven Matz as my number four in the rotation than have an $11 million guy in my bullpen and not be using him in a high leverage situation. So the Cardinals, they needed that start. They need more of that. I would say you probably need to see two or three more of those before the end of the season for Steven Matz to say he's a part of our, rot- our rotation next year. Because if he is, you're talking about a Miles Michaelis slotted in as a number two or a number three. You're talking about a Stephen Matt slotted in as a number four. And then you build around that. And that's how Stephen Matz has to capitalize on this. Yeah, look, he, he does have more to improve upon in terms of just showcasing that this wasn't just a one-off. And let's, let's just be honest. The White Sox aren't a great team either. So we'll see how he performs coming out of the All-Star break. I don't know when he'll get his next start. They haven't really aligned the rotation yet post-All-Star break. Yeah. They've got time to figure that out. But... If I'm them, I'm starting him against the Nationals in that first series because I want him to keep that confidence going. 
I, you know, I, I don't mind that at all either. I, I think what you'll see is potentially that, or you'll see that my, I think Marlins come in right after that. Yeah. My guess is that's probably the series you're going to see him because they'll want to line up if Monty's healthy, which fingers crossed he <sighs> right. is. Uh, Monty, Jack, and Michael Skull in that first series. But yeah, I mean, when, when you see him in this outing, it's encouraging to say, okay, that White Sox offense, yeah, it's not great. But that was like tangible stuff to where if you could translate that to say they were playing the Braves. And I think he would have had great stuff in that game to where he would have been successful. So that's going to be the one thing is you got to see it continuously and then also see how it plays once you start seeing better playoff teams down the stretch of the season. Potentially dumb question here, but for Steven Never Matz. a dumb question oh, here, Grant. Don't say that, question. Alex. Are Test me. no dumb questions. Test me. Um, for Steven Matz, if he gets back into this rotation, are you guys even more concerned about the bullpen? Because it seems like at least one time through this rotation, every time there's one blow up, whether Matthew Libertor goes a third of an inning or just somebody has a really bad game. There's always somebody that it happens to every time through the rotation, it seems. And when that happens, it's Steven Matz that kind of comes in and bridges that gap and fills those innings. So if you move Matz to the rotation again, does that make you even more concerned for the bullpen going forward? All right. You know what, Grant? Stupid question, yep. first of all. Um, See, that's what I thought. I, I appreciate you bre- being brave enough to ask mm-hmm. a stupid wow, question. Wow, it's Monday. We don't have to just shoot him down on no, a Monday. Do. Always do. No, no it's Wednesday, fine. Wednesday, it'd be fine. It's not a Monday, stupid no. question. Grant knows I'm just a jerk. It's just how this thing mm-hmm. goes. No, it's a really good question. To me, it doesn't make a difference because your bullpen needs to be overhauled no matter what. But where it benefits you is I'm less... It's less stressful on rebuilding that rotation if I know I've got a Steven Matz. Who's this? This is I need this Steven Matz because if I get the Steven Matz that goes out there and is good for two innings and then two innings gives up four runs and then it's good and then bad again, then that's a problem. But if this is the Steven Matz that I'm getting, now I'm only talking about really having to be aggressive for two starting pitchers this offseason rather than having to find three. The bullpen needs help no matter what. But as we've talked about, T-Bone, bullpens are easier to overhaul than trying to overhaul four spots in your rotation and an entire bullpen. And you might have some guys in your minor league system that are Steven Matz next year to where you're able to have them. Like a Zach Thompson could be a Steven Matz next year if he's not stretched out as a starter for them. So it doesn't stress me out on the bullpen side of it because that's already a massive task. I actually feel feel more at ease if this is Steven Matz because I know my rotation's in a little bit of a better spot. I, I agree because it kind of twofold. One, it makes rotation better right now, but two, and maybe most importantly, you're trying to figure out what you have in for 2024. The Cardinals can tell you they're competing right now and they're still hoping to get back in this. They're going to say all the right things. They're going to probably trade everybody once we get to the deadline. And when I say everybody, I mean Monty and Jack. They need to figure out what they have for 2024. And that question, those questions also belong with Steven Matz. Is he a guy that's in the rotation to Alex's point to where he is in the rotation? Now you only got to go find three starters compared to four. So I I don't really look at what it is in terms of the bullpen and how it affects that because the bullpen is just bad in general. So I, I'm more excited to see what he looks like as a starter because I think that's going to be the role he's going to be in. I think that was going to be the role he was going to be in no matter what for next year. Yeah. But at least if he can pitch better and pitch what he did as he did yesterday for the re- remainder of the season, then you go in with less of a question mark as c- opposed to if he stayed in the bullpen all year long. And then you said, hey, let's just throw him back out there. He's going to be a starter for us once he gets to spring training in 24. I mean, let's be honest. That bullpen almost blew that game up for them anyway, so it doesn't really matter. What's and, new? Yeah. Um, the other thing, which the rotation in general, 
Raise your hand if you're listening or watching. Did did th- this weekend sting? Oh, just a little yeah. bit more when you saw Montgomery and Michaelis and Matts go out there and deal and think, huh? So far, ro- so far, rotation could have done this for two and a half months. Maybe we're talking about a buying team at the trade deadline because watching Monty, watching Michaelis, getting that from Stephen Matts, and then knowing what Jack Flaherty has provided. I'll take four guys who are pitching really well. Yeah, you would. I look. I I think when you look at the rotation. <laughs> Sorry, I was fighting a sneeze there for a good thirty seconds, and like I was. Say so that pause Oof. felt unnatural until all of a sudden I saw you it sneeze. Al- it also felt a little emotional, like I was going to cry in the middle of it. I think that's fair. But hey, this rotation has made me want to cry a couple of times. Yeah, look, I over the weekend, I it just when you saw them pitch. I mean. All three starters were great. Look, Monty had to leave because of that hamstring injury. And again, hopefully he's okay because, yeah. one, you need him back in your Sounded rotation like because he he's was. one of your best. He is your best pitcher, but also, too, he may get you a lot at the trade deadline if he's healthy. But the the starting staff had a .54 ERA, walked only one, and struck out 20. Well, I'll take that. Like, that that looked kind of like how the Cardinals envisioned the rotation to be. And honestly, it's kind of how I expected it to be going in the year. Because remember, in the offseason, and look, we've been critical of the rotation and how they need to add starting pitching. In the offseason, me and Alex were on the same page of, this rotation was good last year, and it can probably repeat that performance and get you into the playoffs. And the conversation was more of, not can the rotation get you to the playoffs, but is the rotation good enough to win in the playoffs? As we found out, wasn't good enough to get you to the playoffs, it looks like. <laughs> so watching them pitch over the weekend, it just really stung because you know that all four four of these guys in this rotation, Monty, Michaelis, Jack, Matt, when they are right, they are a solid rotation one through four. But for whatever reason, it just has not clicked this year. So watching them perform well in Chicago – really seemed to sting because it was like, man, if you could just get three of those guys to be clicking at the right time, you're not even talking about the deficit that you're in where you're 15 games below 500 and like 10 back against the Cincinnati Reds. You're at least in the conversation of still being in the division and not in the basement of it. Well, sometimes a superb rotation doesn't matter, especially when you're this roller coaster ride that is the Cardinals, because despite their pitching being so good yesterday, they almost lost that game with the other area of the Cardinals that's going to have to be overhauled this offseason. The question is, how are they going to do it? We'll discuss that next here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. On the ground at third base, it's a short hop, and it's booted by Corman. You could see it coming a mile away, and the Sox have tied the game. We, With our pitching staff, we can't give away outs, and we did a decent amount of that today. Ali Marmol saying it best, courtesy of Valley Sports Midwest. And how about the White Sox broadcaster? You could see it coming a mile away. Yeah. I'm assuming he was talking about the errors because... We all could see that coming a mile away. Now, maybe certain situations like Paul Goldschmidt's error in the third inning, not as much because that doesn't happen very often for Paul Goldschmidt. But Wilson Contreras' passed ball, Wilson Contreras's aired throw, and then you get Nolan Gorman later in the game. What was that? The seventh inning? The Yeah, the seventh inning where yeah. he bobbled the ball at third base. He did not look good over the weekend, no. by the way, well, defensively. And look, of, he's been better. I was going to say, a part of me feels bad for Nolan Gorman, but then I'm like, well, I don't because this is what you're there for. But like, he's been, they've been focusing so much at second base with him, and then it's like, let's shift him over to third. But like, you're the utility guy. You played third. Third was your natural position. You should be able to handle that. But none be it. 
the the errors were very apparent for that Cardinals team. And if you weren't playing a team that was worse than you in terms of their pitching and errors, you would have lost that game and we'd be having a different narrative today. But instead, we're talking about a Cardinals win, a good performance by Steven Matz, but the defense still has to be fixed, T-Bone. I mean, we have talked so much about errors this season for this Cardinals team in terms of missed plays behind the plate, bobbled balls in the infield, guys taking bad routes in the outfield, and it has costed this team, I would say, at least 10 to 15 games this season. Their errors, whether it's defense or base running. The problem is, this isn't an easy fix. Because, if you think about it, Wilson Contreras is your catcher. Like it or not, he's there for you. Paul Goldschmidt is a very rare error type of player, but when it happens, he's at first base. He's going to save you more times than not. You've got Nolan Arenado. Nolan Gorman's probably at second base, but your outfield is still going to be the issue. If you talk about the glaring problems when it comes to errors, you're talking about catcher and you're talking about your infield construction. But it's not like you could just ship these guys out and bring people in. You're probably going to be dealing with the same thing for the next couple of years unless these individuals who are playing the position get a little bit more confident at where they're at. Yeah, I, look, it's going to be an individual thing more than I think a team thing because Arnado over the weekend, Friday, had a rare player where it was a chopper to third, and it wasn't an error because the runner beat it out. It was ruled an infield single, but it's a play Arnado makes last year. Nolan Gorman had a rough weekend, and man, did it really affect him. I just looked on Baseball Savant. His outs above average going into yesterday's game, he was in the 60th percentile. He dropped all the way down to 41st with two, with the tough play of yesterday's game. So he's been tough defensively. The outfield as a whole has been bad defensively. And look, part of that is going to be because Jordan Walker's going through the growing pains of learning the new position. Alec Burleson, I don't think, is a great defender. He's, he's average, I would say. But the problem for them is, and this is where I think it's actually going to start for them in fixing their defense. It's figuring out who is your everyday center fielder in 2024. Is he on the roster? And I think that's the biggest question they're going to have to ask themselves because Tommy Edmond was the guy that kind of took that position until he got hurt. And honestly, I think Tommy Edmond was a pretty good outfielder defensively in center field. My, my concern with him as an everyday center fielder is arm strength. I truly believe you have to have a great arm to play center field. And I know that the Cardinals may disagree with that, and they kind of like Edmund out there and don't think the arm strength is going to matter that much. I disagree with that. But I think that's where it starts, is figuring out who the center fielder is because they've run through Tyler O'Neill, Lars Newbar, Dylan Carlson, Tommy Edmund, Oscar Mercado was out there for a little bit this year. And that's kind of the building block of then figuring out the corner outfield spots. You know Jordan Walker's going to be there, and wherever he's at, right or left, he's going to have the growing pains that come with being a young player. And honestly, I think his defense has looked better of late. So I think he is slowly starting to learn the position out there. And then Newbar, I'm assuming, is the other guy that will be in this conversation. He's a good corner outfielder. But center field, to me, is where it starts because they just have not gotten great jumps out there outside of Tommy Edmond this year. Carlson had a decent weekend out there in center, but everybody else, the jumps have not looked great. I think the infield defense, those individuals will figure it out. Contreras is who he is. I'm not sure it's going to get much better in terms of his defense behind the plate. But center field is the one for me where if they're going to take the next step defensively, 
center field is where they've got to figure out who is that guy for them moving forward and heading into 2024. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the biggest question mark right now. Uh, to me, though, I also think you're going to have to get to the point where you've got distinguished positions, where, like, if Nolan Gorman's your second baseman, Nolan Gorman is going to have to be your second baseman, and the day's off for Nolan Arenado, that's where a utility player comes into play. And I know it was a getaway day. That's what happens when you've got multiple guys. Gorman was in there. Jose Fermin was in there. You had a lot of guys that you were getting the days off for, and that's typically not what it's going to look like when you've got Brandon Donovan playing and Tommy Edmond playing, but you're right. It starts with the center field spot and you figuring that out on a permanent basis, and the only way you fix that in the offseason is you're either going to stick with Tommy Edmond, which I just don't see them doing. I really believe that Tommy Edmond is going to switch back to being what we talked last week about keeping Paul DeYoung so he could be the shortstop for Mason Wynn as he grows next season. I think that's going to be Tommy Edmond. And Tommy Edmond can be your second baseman, and he could be your fourth outfielder. He could be everything for you. I think that center field position is going to have to be upgraded either via trade or via free agency to get somebody who you could bring in on a permanent basis. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I'm curious here your thoughts. From the 314 and the 618, I'm seeing texts come in and say, how can you get confident playing your position if you're not playing your position for more than two games at a time? Also, someone saying that the players keep kind of rotating between two different positions. I don't think anybody in terms of defensively, I can understand Edmund, but Edmund basically had become the everyday center fielder. I think they're Gorman talking more second Gorman, and third. but that was a getaway day where you didn't have Brendan Donovan available for and you. And his natural position is third. Maybe the argument is second base, but I think defensively at second base, he's been better this year. But that's where that's where I think it was, is because you were using him at second. Like, I think it just, that's why I said at the top, I feel bad for him, because he's been focused so much on second base, and you've gotten really better at that position, and then you flip back over to third. And look, th- those were hard-hit balls, too, so it's not like we could sit here and act like he bobbled a little dribbler to him. It was a tough play for Nolan Gorman, but it still was considered an error. That's not an everyday problem. That's on getaway day problems. But but if, even then, I don't even view it as an issue because it's his natural position. That's why so, if you go big picture this season, the big picture has been catcher and outfield. And agreed. that's why we're talking. You're going to have to solidify the outfield by acquiring I, one outfielder. I will be fascinated to see what the Cardinals do with Wilson Contreras. And I say that not so much as they've got to get out of this contract. They've got to remove him from the catcher position. But I, I think they desperately, I know I know they miss Yadier Molina's defense, but I'm curious to know how long they want to stick with Contreras behind the plate as an everyday guy. Because defensively, he is not good. I mean, yeah. the pass balls yesterday, the framing's not been good from Wilson Contreras. The, the bat is starting to live up to the hype that you kind of expect it to be. But what they decide to do with him long term, and the fact that they pulled him early in the year, I thought was the way they were going to go, is if you don't view him as an everyday catcher and you view him more as a, hey, let's start him like once in three days and then we'll DH from the others, you're going to have to go get a catcher outside the organization that can help defensively. Yeah. Maybe that's something they do too. Maybe they look to improve upon Andrew Kisner's spot and bring in someone that's more defensive-minded, not so much offensively. Maybe that's the way they go about it. But there, I think it's fair to have some questions about Wilson Contreras and what the future holds for him behind the plate. I would be more willing to give him at least another year to get it figured out. If these same issues continue throughout next season, then that's when you start having those conversations. See, but I absolutely see where you're coming from. I, I would have that same thought process if this wasn't a veteran. This isn't some rookie that you just brought up. This isn't Herrera yeah, from no, last I know, year. But that first year with the team is always tough. And I mean, we remember Nolan Arenado bobbled some balls that first season too, where we were like, "What's going on here?" Uh, the first year, 
And, and look, I'm not. We'll get into this in the twelve o'clock hour. I'm not defending Wilson Contreras because it was bad, and like you almost costed your your team the game because of your poor decisions behind the plate. But I also wonder if there's just a lot of different things coming at him right now in terms of figuring out the pitching staff and making sure that your offense kicks into play. And now you're worrying about framing the pitches. And now you're worrying about starting to get guys out on the base path. I, I'm willing to give him at least another year to figure out the defensive side of things because he wasn't this much of a liability in Chicago. He was bad, but he wasn't this much of a liability. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Cubs couldn't trade him away last year, which is very telling. And why was it? Because his catching. Not his bat. Everybody loves his bat. And by the way, seeing a text uh, from the 980, they need a catcher's coach. He had a catcher's coach in Chicago, and he didn't get good behind the plate. a freaking so, catcher's coach, man. I, uh, why Yadier Molina? I, well, no. But I, I, I don't know. Contreras is a spot where they're going to have to figure out what they want to do in terms of defense behind the plate because I don't think it gets better than this. I, yeah. I think this is what it is, and then, and then it's a question of are the Cardinals okay with that? But maybe it and maybe it looks worse now because he's still struggling. He's starting to get out of the season long slump that he was in. But I think it is definitely a conversation to be had in the off season of. Okay, can Contreras take significant steps with his defense? Because I agree. I think catcher is where they're really being harmed at, and also in the outfield. Look, the infield, I think that is more on individuals have to just step up and play better than it is personnel. I think in the outfield, they don't have the personnel for our everyday center fielder. And in catcher position, I'm not sure they have the everyday guy in terms of defense. Don't I'm not questioning Contreras' offense, but if they want to get back to kind of the Redbird way, or sorry, the Cardinal way, Defense is the cardinal way, and Contreras is not good defensively behind home plate. Interesting question for you guys here. Just curious your thoughts. If Yvonne Herrera had been up the entire season and he had played the games that Wilson Contreras has played this season, how many more games do you think the Cardinals would have won? Like, How big of a difference in the win column do you think this has been this season with I, Wilson Contreras? I think you're probably right at the same spot you are. I think you're worse, if I'm being honest. Because yeah, the bat for Contreras. The, and though Contreras' bat has struggled, it was hard to tell what Herrera's bat was going to be. And also, too, he had the same issues as Contreras has had of handling the pitching staff, framing-wise. That's why they sent him down last year. Yeah. So I'm not sure it would have really helped. And you don't know what the offense was going to be for Herrera. Well, Contreras, at least he had the back of the baseball card. And though he hasn't lived up to it yet, he's, he's starting to get hot. And all his like advanced statistics, like the percentiles and hard hit rate and uh, max exit velo, like, they're all show that he should be getting ready to break out of this. Well, let's be honest with it, too. I mean, the errors that Wilson has committed, they've been... They've cost you runs, but they haven't cost you the games. The games that you've lost have been costed because of bigger errors on the base paths or in the outfield, or it's just been for poor pitching. So Wilson Contreras has had his struggles, but I can make that same statement for multiple other players on this roster. It always comes back to the pitching for Wilson. And we'll get into Wilson coming up at 12-15. Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider, is going to join us at 12. But coming up next, the... NHL saw another big, if you want to call it that, trade yesterday. Should the Cardinals have been involved in it? And if they weren't, is there a bigger picture to why? We'll discuss next on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
So a hockey trade was made yesterday that the Cardinals were not involved in. I know I said Cardinals. I meant Blues. We were talking Cardinals. Everybody calm down. What a bot. BK and Ferrario. It's Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. The Blues weren't involved in the Alex DeBrinkett trade that took place yesterday. And if you remember correctly, Alex DeBrinkett was the one that was rumored by Elliot Friedman who could potentially be traded to St. Louis. St. Louis looking for offense, looking for speed. Well, guess what? DeBrinkett's all of that. But instead, the Blues opted to go to Kevin Hayes, and Alex DeBrinkett was traded yesterday to the Detroit Red Wings, and he was traded to the Detroit Red Wings for Dominic Kubelik, who's a top-nine forward. He scored 30 goals for Chicago, scored 20 this past year for Detroit, a defensive prospect, conditional first-round pick, and a fourth-round pick. So, good trade for Ottawa, essentially because they knew that they weren't keeping Alex DeBrinkett. But even better that the Blues weren't involved with this, and... BK and I talked a lot about this over the rumor mill that took place of could the Blues trade for him. I just wasn't interested. If you had to give me the two pieces in front of me of what I had to trade for the players that I acquired, the package, which if you were going to make the trade for for Debrinkit, you're probably giving up Yakub Verana, Tyler Tucker, and then some draft picks to get Debrinkit to compare what Detroit did. I would much rather give up a sixth round pick for a 31 year old six foot five centerman because that's something the Blues don't have. They already got a small goal scoring forward who is a defensive liability on the ice. Yeah, I I think with the St. Louis Blues, I I don't mind them not really being all that involved. And maybe they were involved, we just don't know it. But I don't mind them not being involved watching Debrink and end up going to Detroit because I. It's tough to see where he kind of, I can see where you can kind of squint and see if he fits into the picture for you because you're adding more goal scoring, maybe a little bit more consistently than Jakub Vrana, who there's still a lot of question marks of what he'll be this year with the St. Louis Blues. And by acquiring Kevin Hayes, like you said, and giving up that sixth-round pick and having Philadelphia retain 50% of his salary, you also made sure that you kept Pavel Buchnevich away from the center position unless in dire need, and Kevin Hayes can help up the middle with the St. Louis Blues team. So I... I'm not that like upset that the Blues were really in, not the ones that were able to acquire Alex Debrinkit. He reminds me a lot of Jordan Cairo, and we talked about this. A guy that you know that's going to put up points, great goal scorer, but there's a lot left to be desired in his defensive game. So the Blues not being involved, it, it kind of makes sense since you've already kind of got your version of Alex Debrinkit, in my opinion. Yeah, and look, I, I think Alex Debrinkit is a really good player. Alex Debrinkit is a guy who can score 40 goals for you. But Alex Debrinkit is also an individual who is going to be on the ice a lot, and he's a liability in terms of he was a minus 31 this past season with Ottawa. And there's a reason that Ottawa opted not to give him the money that he wanted and chose to trade him away. And Ottawa's a team that wants to start competing now. Don't you think that if you wanted a 40-goal scorer and you're trying to compete, that you'd rather keep that guy on your roster? I always take that into consideration, more specifically than hockey than any other sport, because locker rooms matter for hockey teams. And the fact that he was traded away from Chicago, understand that, because basically Chicago was blowing it up. But the fact that he was just traded away from Ottawa because he was going into arbitration and they didn't want to pay him the money he was worth tells me a little bit of something. And for the Blues, frankly, I think I would rather take my chances on a Yakub Verana and see if he could get somewhere with a one-year deal than bring in an Alex to bring it and be forced to be stuck with him for four to five, six, maybe seven years and still have these issues. And and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't even think of this. What, What... 
by acquiring him, you, probably, you essentially probably had to give him the same contract extension he just got well, in Detroit. Yeah, if you're acquiring him for the assets you're trading, you're probably bringing him in because you want him to be here. Now, Detroit didn't go long-term. No. Detroit went four to five years but, with him. But with that being said, one, Vrana, as a guy that's on a one-year deal, is essentially a rental for the St. Louis Blues. If you fall out of contention, you can move Vrana and probably get some de- a decent return for Absolutely. him at the trade deadline. But also, too, with him just Vrana just being on a one-year deal... It creates a roster spot going into next season if you believe like a Zachary Bolduc's a guy that could be up here and really contributing with the NHL team yeah. next year. You bring in Debrinket, you lock him up for, I can't remember what he get, five years if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It, if that's the case, you basically have another spot that kind of blocks Bolduc's potential spot on this well, roster. It's not just Bolduc, it's Snuggerud, it's Dean. I mean, you've got three guys that'll be competing yeah. for NHL roster spots next year, and if you bring it into Brinkett, one... Maybe you're still able to bring back a Pavel Buchnevich, depending on the salary cap. But two, these guys that you're bringing in, you're shifting them down a notch. And if you're trying to grow these guys into NHLers, I don't know if you want that for four to five years. The right method is what they've got right now with three guys in your top nine as wingers that are on one-year deals. Well, and another thing that it blocks is, you know, say in three years and the Blues are starting to get competitive again, they want to go out and get a f- big free agent defenseman. Like if you have Alex Debrinket on the books, that could potentially block you from doing anything that you want to do on the defensive side to go out and get your number one defenseman or a top pairing defenseman when you're wanting to contend again. So I'm totally with you guys. I was never, uh, Alex Debrinket was never really on my radar this offseason for the Blues. It just didn't seem like a fit. And uh, not surprising that Detroit was the team that got it done. The other thing about that, too, is did the Blues basically show their hand in how they're diverting away from what they thought was their identity to something else? Because they chose a guy who was six foot five and not fast and didn't acquire, whether it was Debrinket or Ross Colton or somebody else, who was smaller and had speed. The, them not being involved with Alex Debrinket, them not trading for Ross Colton, them opting to go for Kevin Hayes. And even when the Travis Sanheim thing fell off the table and they still traded for Kevin Hayes, that kind of tells me that they're thinking we need more size to our lineup, especially if you look around the Central. You may not be able to compete with the McKinnons and the Rantanens. You may not be able to compete with the Kaprizovs and for how much speed that those teams have or Edmonton with McDavid. But if you've got size, that's something that the other teams may not have as much of. And frankly, just think of the matchups that the Blues have had with Minnesota. How much of a pain Joel Eriksson-Eck and Marcus Foligno have been to the Blues in the regular season and in the postseason. Nashville the same way. Alex Debrinkit's not helping you with that. Kevin Hayes, who's six foot five, is helping you with that. So the Blues are shifting their identity a little bit to me. And what else is interesting about that is the fact that if you go back to right after the season ended and you asked Doug Armstrong if they were going towards somebody this offseason, what would they look like? And he gave you that age range of like 24 to 28. And Alex Debrinkit fits that. He's 25 years old, where Kevin Hayes does not fit yep. what he was distri- describing at all. So I-, I think it's a great point, Alex, because. You also look at what they tried to do with Travis Sanheim bringing in uh, a big defenseman. Like It's pretty clear that the Blues are trying to go towards size. And again, a copycat league, we've said it a million times. You see what Vegas does with all the size that they have. Other teams are going to go looking at that and say, we need to get bigger. 
because that's how you win in the playoffs. Absolutely. And not just kind of in the offseason, because you're right looking at Sandheim, a guy that had size, Hayes size. Uh, look at the draft. I, I think in the draft they did draft a decent amount of size as well. Now, not everybody was really big that they went after, but they were certainly definitely targeting some size in the NHL draft as well with some of their picks there too. So maybe it is something, or I, I'm still a little hesitant to completely buy in on that's what they were looking for because I still think they view it as speed is the way that we're going to win is quick through the neutral zone. I think Hayes was one of those where it was just, hey, 50% retained for a sixth-round pick. This is too good to pass up with his offensive upside. But maybe we'll see if they end up transitioning. If they go into next offseason and they continue to look to add size, then, yeah, they will definitely be a team that I would say, okay, they're definitely looking to kind of change the way that they play. I'd still keep a close eye on Oscar Sundquist, too. Uh, I'm with you. Still hasn't signed. 6'3", 220 pounds. Guys he's at the following City SC yeah, matches. I was about to say, he was in he Toronto was Binner's, this weekend. Uh, in Binner's yeah, wedding yeah. party, yeah. too, I saw. It's like, yeah, I'm with you. I would keep an eye on that one because, again, though, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, Like you've got a lot of names that I guess you're just going to throw out there and see what happens. I mean, it's what you did last year when you brought in a pit lick. I wonder if Sonny doesn't get signed, comes on a tryout. And it sucks if that's your if that's what happens for Sonny because Sonny's probably a guy that deserves a contract rather than a tryout. But he has had injuries and he did have an injury this past year. Uh, maybe that's it, where he gets a little tryout like Tyler Pitlick does, sign him to a contract, and then he fights with everybody else for those roster spots. But we'll talk about that fourth line a little bit later in the one o'clock hour. We got Katie Wu coming up at twelve. But coming up next, send us your text three one four three nine 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 six four six on our Air Comfort Service text line, or you can post your questions on our YouTube channel live chat at one hundred one ESPN STL. Just click on BK and Ferrario, find the chat, type in your question. We'll give you answers next year on one. One ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions, we may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646. That is our Air Comfort Service text line. Also live on our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL. It's BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario as we get to your questions now here on Questions and Answers. Let's start with this from 314. What did you guys think of the Cardinals' first draft pick last night? They took outfielder Chase Davis from Arizona. I, I really like it. Everything I read on this kid seems like he's got the potential to, and, and he kind of reminds me of, based on the reading, is like a Nolan Gorman, but like outfield type. Pure power from the left side, cut down his chase rate in college this year. I He sounds like a guy the Cardinals had interest in back in 2020 during that pandemic draft. That was five rounds. The kid was in high school. I think Randy Flores even said if, if they had more picks in that draft, they may have selected him. So I, this is a guy the Cardinals have clearly been trying to target over that last handful of years. I don't mind the selection. I know a lot of people wanted them to go with pitching in the first round, and frankly, I've kind of wondered if they might do that. But I think they just said, hey, this is the best player in the first round. That's what they wanted to target. Best player, I would say. And you can focus on pitching in rounds 3 through 20 the next two days to try and cover your pitching needs. Yeah. I, look, anytime you get somebody who's got raw power, as everybody said about this player, sure, that's great. And it sounds like, at least from the reporting that Derek Gould 
uh, had done on the post dispatch that like the Cardinals have been scouting this kid since high school. So they obviously have a ton of information on him. And if it pans out, great. My only issue with it is I, I understand how you use the argument of you go with the best available player, but baseball is different than hockey, in my opinion, to where. I think baseball, you go with the best available player, but because there's so many guys, you go with the best available player at the position you're deficient in. And that's where I thought that they would have gone pitching. And the player that at least uh, Derek Gould had reported that the Cardinals had interest in was Hurston Waldrip of Florida. And he was selected like three picks later. And look, all of this is potential because we've seen number one overall picks be busts in baseball. So it doesn't really matter. But I just I thought they would have gone pitching. But I guess we'll see. They might go pitching heavy the rest of the draft. Yeah, And that's what I keep an eye on, because though we talk about the pitching so much right now and we say, man, they got no pitching. Look at the major league team. Look at AAA. I mean, AAA, there's not a whole lot of pitching down there that could help them in the future really as well. But if they decide to avoid, and I'm not saying avoid like they don't select a pitcher in 20 rounds, but if they don't go as heavy as we kind of expect in their selections on pitching, it tells me that they think they've got a lot coming up through the minor league system in terms of like Bryson Motts, who has selected Cooper Drippy, who is out right now because of uh, elbow, elbow issue. Maybe they view that they have deeper pitching than we think. And just looking from the outside in, you always, you always look at, the major league team in triple a and like it's easy to tell right now that they're deficient in pitching in, at those levels but they may think that they've got enough in high a low a double a to where they could all come up and start to really supplement the triple a team by next year and potentially help the cardinals at the big league level next year as well sticking on baseball from the 618 are you guys excited about tonight's home run derby well i'm excited because i can listen to it on the radio which is going to be live here on 101 espn starting at seven o'clock that's what i'm excited about yeah i'm excited about hearing it on 101 espn (laughs) no i i mean i'll say this it's a good group of guys the pro the only part for the home run derby that gets I don't want to say boring, but monotonous is when it's the same guys over and over. And I know they got a couple of them that are in there, like Julio Rod- or, uh, yeah, Julio Rodriguez being in it, Vlad Guerrero Jr. But it is a little exciting knowing that Mookie Betts is doing it for the first time, see Randy Rosarena, to see Adolis Garcia, and then, of course, you have um, the uh, the young catcher from Baltimore. Edley Rutschman. Yeah, I can't pronounce his last name for some reason. But uh, though, like that's the exciting part, at least for me, where you get a couple of fresh faces in the home run derby. Yeah, I for me it's I look I love the home run derby and I'll definitely be listening to it tonight on one oh one ESPN. But You're darn I tootin'. I uh I don't find this field to be like that exciting. I don't feel like there's like a great storyline. Look, I get it Alonzo's been great as a home run derby guy, but like Mookie Betts has even said, like, yeah, I really don't want to do this. Like, my wife's making me do it. Like, that's r- literally the hey, only reason he's doing if your this. your wife's asking you to do it, you I, go out there and you do it. And, and, like, last year it was cool because you had Albert Pujols that was in the home run derby. You had the storyline of him trying to have that re- renaissance at, and at that point was really struggling. Who would you have wanted in it then to make it more interesting? Like, if you could replace Mookie Betts with somebody else. And don't not Shohei because everybody would say Shohei. I mean, Shohei is definitely, like, the obvious answer. But, look, he's... He, Clearly didn't want to do it, and I think he did it last year, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't really think of anybody that just like would really excite me like off the top of my head outside of Shohei Otani. I think it's just one of those years where it's like, yeah, the field's just like yeah. not that great. And look, I'm going to listen and watch it because I, I do like the home run derby, and it's the only thing on. But 
it, for whatever reason, this field to me does not feel as exciting as it did last year. Maybe all of the excitement last year was just because it had Albert Pujols. How many Cardinals fans turn off the round when it's Garcia versus Ronda Rosarina? The sad part is, is I think they're all going to watch that and go, and look complain. at what we could have had. Well, coming tomorrow, it's segment, uh, what could have been for the Cardinals, Adolis Garcia and Randy Rosarena? Yeah, we're not going to do that, by what the way, What are you Tech's talking line. about? What are you talking about? One more. It's from time the, to move on. <laughs> from the 314, fellas, I know you've talked a lot about Dalibor Dvorsky, but what are the realistic expectations of him being a part of the NHL roster in the next couple of years? I would say by next season, he's going to be competing for a spot. I don't know if he'll get a spot, but I'll say he's competing for a spot. In two years, I'll say he's playing in your top six. Because next year... Wait, how many years till he's in your top six? Two years. I think he might spend some time on the third line before he jumps up. the, the, The issue for him is next year, you know, spots are opening up in terms of Blay and Verana and Kapanen and all those guys moving on, but you've also got Snuggerud in front of you, Bolduke in front of you, Dean in front of you. So you're going to have to outplay one of them. But then the next year, you're talking about potentially shifting into that top six, top nine role. And I think by then, he's going to have a World Juniors tournament under his belt. He's going to have multiple years playing in Swedish Hockey League, be 20 years old. That's where I would say you can plan on him being a consistent player for the Blues within two years. Yeah, and for this upcoming season, you can definitely 100% forget it because he's signed in Sweden, I believe, to play over there. So this season's out. The season after, I think he's got a real chance to break into the lineup, and if he doesn't do it on opening night, again, injuries always happen. He has a great chance to break into the lineup in some way in two seasons from now. And I think that's a fair assessment for when he's going to be breaking into the league. Tanner hates blues prospects. So no, he thinks no, he'll I, be a bust. I just think in two years saying he's going to be in the top six feels a little lofty to me. Just like last year, I thought it was too lofty. The expectation, the blues, the blues, maybe not even us put on what Jake neighbors was supposed to be on that third line production wise and helping that team uh, with the absence of David Perron. So I would say, I, I don't disagree. Two years, I think he's going to be comp- potentially competing for a spot. I don't think he'll make it because I think the Blues really want to take their time in developing Dvorsky because he's the first top 10 pick in years. I think it's three years before you see him on the team, and I don't even think he'd be a top six forward. I think the plan would be to have him, as you said, centering the third line, maybe even the fourth. All comes down to how he uh, how he continues to grow over these next couple of years because I, I think a lot of people thought Snuggerud was going to be Maybe a not a bust, but a depth player in in one year became a guy that now they're talking about is going to be a and a top goal scorer when he gets the opportunity with the Blues. So really comes down to uh, that development for St. Louis. Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Appreciate all your questions. We will give some questions to Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider for the Athletic, as she joins us next on BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. <laughs> to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Well, we officially hit the all-star break for Major League Baseball after the Cardinals beat the White Sox yesterday. They win the series, and now they head into some much-needed off time with a couple of guys dealing with injuries and, of course, dealing with an underperforming first half 
of the season. Alongside Tanner Henderson and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK this week, celebrating the birth of their new baby boy. He will be back with us next week, so congrats to all of them. But he does miss out on our favorite time of the week, which is catching up with our Cardinals insider, Katie Wu. Katie, you officially made it to the All-Star break. How's it feel? We have made it to the All-Star break, and uh, what an unforgettable first half for those St. Louis Cardinals, guys. Unforgettable? I would go with more forgettable because, man. I would try to forget it. Yeah, Katie, I've been trying to forget it since day one of the regular (laughs) season, and it's just been been impossible to do. But, look, we got to start with the positives, which is something rare that we say this season, but... Katie, Steven Matz did everything he needed to do to prove that he deserves to be in the rotation. The issue is he's got to continue this. Yeah, absolutely. I thought Steven Matz was really encouraging in his performance on Sunday. Keep in mind, he was not built all the way to go 90 pitches working in that extended role in the bullpen. But for him to rack up the line that he did, nine strikeouts over five and a third on 75 pitches, that looked like the Steven Matz the Cardinals are really going to need to rely on in the second half, regardless of what the playoff picture looks like. Steven Matz is a Cardinal for the next two years after this, and the way that their pitching is shaping up for the next couple of seasons, they're going to need him to be in that rotation. But it was really encouraging for me to see Steven go back, work on all the things that he talked about doing during his uh, stint as a reliever, and come back and look like the starter the Cardinals are envisioning come this spring. Katie, I, I thought over the weekend Yvonne Herrera was really impressive in the two games that he caught behind the plate. What did you make of his performance, and do you think he can has he secured a spot after the All-Star break on this roster? Yeah, so I thought when the Cardinals brought up Herrera, obviously it was need-based with Kisner going on the IL, but why they brought him up, I thought there was actually more to that move. If the Cardinals are just looking for a backup catcher for their backup catcher to carry them through the All-Star break, I think they would have gone with someone like Trace Barrera, but because they brought in Herrera... I, those names are going to get me so confused at some point during the segment, <laughs> right? You guys know um, because they brought in Herrera. I think it was to uh, see as much playing time as possible. We've seen Wilson Contreras get more time as the DH. Uh, was working on a couple things over the off season, of course, the dental procedure that he had. But for Herrera, with the Cardinals bringing him up, I think it was to give him some extended playing time. I think he's warranted that with his performance in AAA, and I've been really encouraged. I think by his overall poise and his demeanor, he looks like a more, not just mature player, but a player who trusts himself, is a little more confident. I think last season, and he said it as well, he wasn't quite sure if he was ready to be in the big leagues. And I'm not saying he's going to be the full-time catcher, of course, the Contreras here, but I do think in this playing time he's warranted more consideration because at this point, at this time, he does look ready to be here. We're talking with our Cardinals insider covering the athletic for the Cardinals, Katie Wu. Katie, you mentioned Wilson Contreras, and a bad day for him yesterday, albeit his offense carried the team, but defensively and behind the plate, he is struggling. What Does his role change as the everyday catcher moving forward this season and further into his contract? You know, I think this season, especially in the second half, we're going to see the Cardinals do a lot of maybe unorthodox things because, let's be honest, guys, the likelihood that they reach the playoffs is very slim. (laughs) So this could be a a door for the Cardinals to be a little more experimental, and that would be an area where I think uh, they would try that with Contreras. What we saw on Sunday in particular was textbook what I think 29 other teams would have seen when they saw the Cardinals sign Contreras. You're going to get some offense. You're going to see him carry the team that way, but the defense is always going to be a step behind that offense production. Uh, cost him two runs yesterday. They were obviously, you know, thanks to JoJo Romero, able to get that win in the south side. But I think 
next in the next two months is a perfect time for the Cardinals to experiment that. I think they've already started that again with that split playing time, seeing him as DH. Um, at some point, the Cardinals are going to have to see what they have in Herrera. They're going to have to see if he can fill in what kind of role, if he could potentially be traded. They're going to have to identify that. They know what they have in Kisner, and I could definitely see Kisner getting even better the more playing time that he gets. I think Kisner's had a really strong year in his opportunity so far. But I would not be surprised at all if we see the Cardinals kind of tweak Contreras' role over the next two months and see how that will perhaps shape his usage for his years going forward. Katie, moving forward, if Wilson Contreras has a more of a workload as a DH compared to a catcher, do you consider that a bust of a contract or a signing for the Cardinals? I would... I wouldn't consider it a bust of a contract, but I would consider it a bust of signing a catcher. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because when the Cardinals were, obviously, we talked about this so many times, guys, no one is expecting or looking to replace, or to replace Yadier Molina. But when John Mazalak and Wilson Contreras met and they ultimately agreed to sign, they both said we're looking to find a primary catcher. They did not want to do this platoon between a DH and a catcher like Contreras did in Chicago. So with that being understood and that premise being set, I would think if the Cardinals get to that point where he is platooning again and is splitting time between those positions, that would be a fail in signing a starting catcher. Now, of course, Contreras can still contribute on the other side of the plate. We've seen it. I do think the more that he hits consistently, obviously, the better he'll be. And sometimes that takes a while in that first year. You talk to guys like Goldie, like Nolan Arenado, their first year uh, signing a big contract or coming to a new organization didn't go as they hoped either. Um, but from playing time and based on how that might be in the future, yes, I would say that it would be a bust of signing a catcher. Katie, you had mentioned you know that they may try and experiment with things because their playoff chances are slim. Do you think that they've already determined that they are sellers, or do you think there is still some hope within both the organization and the front office that they can potentially turn things around getting close to the deadline and maybe hold or buy? You know, it's going to sound crazy, probably because it is. Don't do it, but Katie. I don't think I do not think the Cardinals have fully convinced themselves that they should be sellers. Oh no. Because of the division. And to me that's a mistake. I'm not advocating to just give up and stop trying, but I think there is a way to salvage the season and make or salvage the rest of the season and punt on the next two months so they can set themselves up to contend in twenty twenty four. Look, when you look at this roster, it's clear they should not be underperforming this much. I'm not talking about the pitching necessarily, but the roster overall. They have the pieces they can. They need to be competitive. It's just a, a matter of finding where they fit. And right now, there's a bunch of positional log jams. We've talked about the outfield. We talk about the middle infield. That's maybe complicating the matters a bit in terms of roster production. We know the Cardinals need pitching help, both from a rotation standpoint and from a bullpen standpoint. The Cardinals could utilize some of those pieces to get that pitching help or at least get a jump start on it. But because of the division and because it's not very competitive, even though the record does not suggest this should be feasible at all, I can still see the Cardinals trying to avoid a full sell at the trade deadline. Katie, shouldn't there be concern, though, and I'm, I'm asking this from like a Cardinals fan's perspective, if they convince themselves that they're not sellers and they try and make a run with it, that they wait too long and come August 1st, the best return isn't available if they do opt to trade pieces away? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why I think this trade deadline more than... Any more in the recent years leading up to it are it's so important not just for this season but for the trajectory of the club going forward. The Cardinals at this trade deadline are essentially telling the fan base what their plan is and if they've learned anything from this disaster of a first half. 
that's why I think it'll be so interesting to see what they actually do. Part of me wants to be optimistic that there will be a different kind of trade deadline that, you know, I, I, again, I've said this before, I don't think the Cardinals need to fully rebuild, nor do I think that's even a matter of question for the front office at this trade deadline. But how they approach it, what moves they make, what moves they don't make, will set the tone for not just this season, but for seasons to come. And, you know, again, if they wait too long, they'll be essentially shooting themselves in the foot for 2024 and 2025. And that's not something they can afford to do, especially given the, the new schedule and the fact that this NL Central is only going to get better. We've already seen that with the Pirates starting to turn the corner a little bit, but definitely the Reds. Katie, yesterday, first round of the MLB draft, and the St. Louis Cardinals elect to go with the 21st pick. They go with uh, Chase Davis from Arizona. What did you make of that pick from the St. Louis Cardinals? You know, I like it. Um, Chase Davis, we talked to him on Zoom yesterday, very charismatic. I think Cardinals fans will like him. That energy is contagious, and I'm always going to be happy to see another Northern California kid come <laughs> join me in St. Louis at some point. But I think when you're looking at what Randy Forrest has done as director of scouting, that work speaks for itself, especially that 2020 draft. And Chase Davis was an, a name they were keeping on during 2020, but of course with COVID, that draft was shortened to just five rounds. So Davis ultimately went unclaimed, but they kept tabs on him for the following three years. Davis knows Jordan Walker, Tink, Tink Hens, Mason Wynn. He's hit with Dylan Carlson out in the Sacramento area. They're both from the same hometown, but went to rival high schools. And that kind of Cardinals connection, I think, and the fact that, that you know the, the Cardinals scouting, develop, uh, scouting team had been looking at him for so long. I think it's a great pick. You don't always draft for uh, need, especially in the first round. You draft for what's best available. But when you're looking at the Cardinals' depth system and their farm system outfield specifically, I think the Cardinals were able to check both boxes there. Katie, you mentioned Tink Hintz, and Tink Hintz was a part of the Futures game over the weekend in Seattle along with Victor Scott. Both guys played pretty well at the Futures game, but my question more is about what could they potentially impact the club in 2024? And, and that may sound crazy at first, but last year in the Futures game, Jordan Walker was there, and as we've seen, he's up with the big league team now. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think it's difficult for especially Tink Hintz because he's a pitcher, and they often take a little bit longer to become major league ready. But I think Victor Scott has put himself on the radar. I don't know necessarily if they're going to be knocking on the door 2024 spring training, but definitely names to keep an eye on, maybe towards the end of 2024. But certainly when you're looking at some of these prospects we've been talking about for a while with Jordan Walker, Nolan Gorman, uh, Mason Wynn, those guys, you know, obviously Gorman and Walker are there. Mason Wynn is almost. I think that's kind of the area that they're looking at now, and maybe Tink Hence and, and, and Victor Scott towards the end of 2024. But one thing that I think is pretty admirable about this Cardinals farm system is how they keep replenishing it, even though they'd never really draft all that high, although that might change after this 2023 season. Katie, we always appreciate your stuff. Go enjoy this little bit of a break you have after the first half of the season, and we'll chat with you next week once we get underway for the second half. You got it, guys. Enjoy the break. There you go. That's Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. And, of course, subscribe to The Athletic to get uh, all of your Cardinals information from Katie, our Cardinals insider. A couple of things we got to get into with her. We'll talk more about the Victor Scott and Tink Hens thing a little bit later. But I want to talk more about the Wilson Contreras because she had an interesting answer when I asked if that contract is considered a bust if he becomes more of a DH than a starting catcher. So we'll discuss that on the other side here on BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 
ESPN. Swing and a drive down the line. That ball is gone. Contreras with a missile into the left field corner. And the Cardinals have taken a 2-1 lead. That pops away from Contreras. His throw is into center field. Bad decision there. And there'll be no throw to third. As Colas takes second and advances on the overplay by Contreras. That one pops away from Contreras. Boy, the Cardinals are not helping themselves defensively in this game. A pass ball led to the first White Sox run, and now Remyard 90 feet away as this one gets away. So it was a Jekyll and Hyde type of game for Wilson Contreras yesterday against the White Sox, and really over the weekend against the White Sox. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN and our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL. So with Wilson Contreras, you know what you're getting. You know you're not getting the greatest defender behind home plate, but you know you're getting somebody who can have some extreme difference-making ability on the offensive side of things. And frankly, that's what we saw yesterday. Although he did cost the Cardinals a couple of runs, he also saved them a couple of runs by hitting his two-run bomb and then, of course, his, uh, his single that he had a little bit later on in the game. But... When you get both sides of it with Wil- with Wilson Contreras, fans are going to pick out one side or the other. It's not you get the best of both worlds. It's, well, great, his offense is awesome, but that defense needs to be fixed. You might not be fixing that. And that's why I posed the question to our Cardinals insider, Katie Wu, in the previous segment that, look, if he becomes a DH solely from that bat, is that a bust of a signing? And I loved Katie's answer in terms of it's not a bust of a signing, it's a bust of finding the catcher. And for the Cardinals... They they need the catcher. And if it's not Andrew Kisner, if it's not Yvonne Herrera, you really don't want to have to go back to the market and find another starting catcher because you know what it costs and you know how difficult it is to find one of those starting catchers. And you clog up the DH spot. But as much as I look at Wilson Contreras and say, yeah, the guy has struggled this season behind the plate, no question. I'm also willing to deal with that if his offense is going to play the way it's been playing because there are other areas that you could tighten up and hopefully the defense gets a little bit better. I mean, you're talking a tad better and maybe you can get by with it. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I, I think when you look at Wills Contreras, and, and look, maybe this is all just being put on display right now. I saw someone text in earlier when we were talking about this. It's only being highlighted because they're struggling. I agree. Maybe if they're winning, we're not even talking about his defense. But I think for them to get back to winning, they got to get back to playing fundamental baseball. And that starts with defense. And it's no coincidence they were winning while Yadier Molina was here. And I'm not saying that's because Yadier was behind the plate. But it definitely felt you had a sure thing behind home plate defensively. And though Contreras' bat can play for you, I just don't know if it's going to be able to make up for the lack of defense that he provides. Yes, he's good at getting... Uh, runners caught in stealing, but he's not been good framing-wise. The Cardinals already raised the question about his game-calling ability, and maybe that's changed, but I I don't know. That's something the Cardinals would know internally. I, I think I think Katie phrased it perfectly. It, if, if they decide to make him more of, and not a everyday DH, what she was basically saying was basically split playing time with whoever the other catcher is and DH him on other days. I agree. I mean, I don't think the contract necessarily is a bust, but it certainly is a bust in terms of 
finding the everyday catcher. And, and that's the way it's kind of felt right now this year as to where he doesn't really feel like a everyday catcher. Now, I, I don't think it's necessarily that hard to find that guy because you're essentially probably going to just look for a defensive-minded catcher that plays 50 to 60% of the games and Contreras then plays the other percentage and is the DH and tries to provide that offense to make up for him. But I, this, this signing has not gone the way that I envisioned it and how the front office clearly envisioned it, and that is they thought he could actually – they thought the defense was more of the kind of, oh, it's overstated, he can't be that bad, and they fell for it in a, basically a job interview. And as we've seen this year, he's been what he was basically advertised as when he was with Chicago. And that's – and see, that's where I kind of fall with this. Like, he's exactly what was advertised, and you went into that meeting knowing that he is going to be a an average at best catcher behind the plate, but you know that that offense, I mean, if you look at what he has done since the beginning of June, you're talking about a 300 batting average of 408 on base percentage, 563 slug and a 971 OPS. And I know that doesn't sound great, but it has significantly improved. If you look at what the start of June was to the end of June up until now, I'm just going large sample size right there for him. But when I look at the, the, the full workload of Wilson Contreras this season, the framing's been bad. There's no question. And look, managing the pitching staff has been difficult already with what you have and then add into Wilson Contreras's unfamiliarity with it. But I also don't look at certain games and say Wilson Contreras just costed them that game. As much as I look at it and say the bullpen costed them that game or that starting pitcher costed them that game. Like if I know that going into a season, there's probably five or six games that Wilson Contreras is just going to be abysmal behind the plate. I think I'll take that. If I know the guy's going to finish the season with a near 275, 280 batting average and hitting 30 home runs in a season. I, so I, I don't disagree with you there. I, I think it's a good point of like, I, I don't think you can like circle Wilson Contreras and saying, yeah, he's lost you three, four games, but I guess kind of my pushback would be, and you saw this yesterday, he did lead to two runs, and it felt like that's not just the first time that has happened where he's had a pass ball that's moved somebody up a base or he doesn't block a pitch. And look, a wild pitch isn't on the catcher for, say, it is the pitcher skipping it. you got to block. But you'd like to see it blocked. Yeah. So I, I have felt like there are a couple of games that have gone that way. And you said, you know, you can live with Contreras with his offense and he, if he's average defensively. I, I don't think he's been average defensively. I, I think he's been below average, if I'm being honest. I, I, I think his framing's been poor. I think the handling of the pitching staff, and I know you guys were on the opposite side of this as me, I, I do think that the handling of the pitching staff and the Cardinals' decision to pull him away was somewhat warranted. And again, I, I said at the time, and I still believe this, the pitching struggles are not all on Wilson Contreras. But is there a chunk of it because of game calling that that he did early on in the year? I think there is a portion of that to be said. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think the Cardinals are going to have a difficult decision to make in the offseason because if they truly believe that his defense can't get better and they think that's part of the problem and they still aren't are questioning his handling of a pitching staff they may need to look themselves in the mirror and go okay we may need to go at a guy that can help us behind the plate and i'm not even saying go sign like a superstar catcher i don't even know if that kind of guy is going to be out there this offseason but you got to go find yourself somebody that is good defensively, that can handle a pitching staff, that can go in and start 50%, 60% of the games. And maybe that's Kisner. I don't know. I don't know how they truly view him. Maybe the, it's a rare if he continues to impress. The question is, how do you do that then, though? Because let's just hypothetically say Yvonne Herrera becomes a guy that they trust in that sense. And you've got him to where you can use him behind the plate. You get more reps. He understands the pitching staff well, and you put him out there more. 
now you're clogging up the DH spot with Wilson Contreras because of that bat. And we know how Ali likes to utilize that DH, where you move guys around a little bit, and you're not going to be talking about taking that bat out of the lineup. It really does disrupt what this team is trying to accomplish if you have to go out there and find a catcher who can play more games for you. See, I I don't think it disrupts a whole lot if you do it, because... Yes, maybe. I, I could hear the argument if you're kind of clogging the DH spot, but I mean, Contreras has played DH a lot already this year, and and I think they Ollie does a good enough job in terms of kind of balancing who's at the DH spot, and Gorman will be your everyday second baseman for the most part next year, I would I would believe. So I, I don't think it really changes anything, and I, I can understand the argument of, oh, well, what's Contreras going to think? Well, I'm sorry, but... I don't really care what Wilson Contreras thinks because he's part of the problem in terms of why you got to go do this because you don't trust him defensively. So I I wouldn't have a massive issue with it. Would it be admitting that they missed on signing the future catcher for this organization for the next five years? Yeah, definitely would. But I, I don't think it's like a super hard and tough thing for them to really do. I think they can find a defensive catcher or just stick with Kisner, frankly, if you think he's the defensive so guy. So how does Yvonne Herrera play in all of this? Because he did have himself a good couple of days, specifically the two-for-four night that he picked up two RBIs against the White Sox. How does he play in all of this? Because Katie seems to believe that you're going to see a little bit more reps from him, just like you might be seeing more playing time for Andrew Kisner. That is, if the Cardinals decide they're going to be sellers, how does he play into all of this for the Cardinals? Because we've believed that he's going to be a trade chip for the Cardinals. Yeah, I, and I still think that's possible. I, I still think it's possible Herrera could just be up kind of to showcase that his skills that were being shown in um, AAA, that they can translate to the big leagues and he can be a potential everyday catcher for somebody. It's possible that's the case of what they're doing. But I, I think he's a guy that if he continues to play well, and I think he was great this week. I thought he was the Cardinals' best player over the weekend. Out, or sorry, second best behind Nolan Arnato. That dude's on fire right now. Um, but I, I think if he continues to play well, and if they do go kind of the route that Katie was saying, where they maybe do more of a 50-50 split, which I think they've been doing most of the season, maybe more 60-40 between him and Kisner, I think there's a chance he could be playing to try and take Andrew Kisner's job going into next year where he could be that backup that we're potentially talking about. Whether it is just you can't the dethrone same role, the captain. Well, if you get a new captain, you could. Um, but I, I, I think it is possible that we're talking about Evander Herrera being on the roster in 2024, whether it be as a backup or a guy that's splitting time with Contreras. I, I think they want to kind of have an idea of what they have because I think last year's sample size, and, and I think Katie said it perfectly, you know, Evan Herrera said that he doesn't didn't believe he was ready for the majors or he, he just wasn't prepped for the majors. I, I think now's that time where you really find out. They told him what to work on. They believe he's done that in Memphis with receiving, framing. Uh, his bat really carried it in AAA during this season and looked pretty good over the weekend. So now is where you really start to figure out, okay, what is Herrera's? Is it kind of the Kisner type? Okay, we kind of have that. We've got a guy that we like in Kisner. Maybe we can try and sell high on Herrera. Or it is, hey, this guy's ceiling may be higher than we think or we're expecting, so maybe we decide to keep him and pull him from any trade conversation, potentially. I'm not saying you completely remove him because if, like, Dylan Cease were available, and you said, oh, I really, we really want that guy, sure, then you're listening to Herrera. But I think he can potentially play himself into a potential role in 2024. That'll be interesting approaching that April, uh, that August 1st deadline because the more teams that see more of Herrera, if he continues to perform that way, more teams are calling him. Maybe that helps you get what you're looking for, 
Or maybe the Cardinals do say we need Yvonne Herrera, especially moving forward with Wilson Contreras' um, issues. But all that resides on the Cardinals looking at August 1st as a buyer or a seller. I can't believe I'm saying that, but Katie Wu mentioned that the Cardinals might still not have convinced themselves. If that's the case, what does that mean for the next month? We'll discuss here on 101 ESPN next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's going to sound crazy, probably because it is. I do not think the Cardinals have fully convinced themselves they should be sellers because of the division. And to me, that's a mistake. I'm not advocating to just give up and stop trying, but I think there is a way to salvage the rest of the season and punt on the next few months so they can set themselves up to contend in 2024. Uh, Frankly, I couldn't believe that Katie said that. That the Cardinals have not convinced themselves yet that they are sellers. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. That was Katie Wu who joined us earlier in the show. If you missed any of it, you can check it out on our podcast after the show, 101ESPN.com, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. We are live on our YouTube channel, at 101ESPNSTL. If the Cardinals haven't convinced themselves that they're sellers yet, what else has to happen for this team to convince themselves? Your pitching has been abysmal pretty much for all season. But I'd hear the argument, maybe a slight span where the pitching's been better than than you would expect. Your offense has been good, but it's been inconsistent. And your defense looks like it's still uncertain of where they're supposed to be nine times out of ten. None of that that I just said states, hey, we could still get in this. Like Cincinnati is nine games above five hundred right now. And I know that doesn't sound like a great record. It's not the Atlanta Braves of the NL East. But you're, what is it, 15 games below 500? We're up to 14. 14 games below 500. Now. That's quick math on the fly, which might be incorrect. That's 23 games to try and catch up to Cincinnati. And you've got, what, 70, 80 left the rest of the season? I mean, my math isn't great. Your math I've, sucked, to be honest. I could have it's just, 11 and a half games back. I could have just butchered all of that. Yeah, you did. Well, there you go. You were right on one part that the Reds are in first and the Cardinals are in last. The, look, simple math for dummies right now. Yeah. There are not enough games. I think you just carried one, one <laughs> wrong. There are not enough games for this Cardinals team to put themselves back in that conversation. Because it's win the NL Central or you're not getting in. So there is nothing between... When you start on Friday until August 1st, that is going to convince you otherwise. This team needs to decide that they're sellers right now. Yeah, I to be honest, I'm frankly surprised that if that would be the view set, viewpoint of the St. Louis Cardinals is that we should either hold or potentially still buy because of our division. Because I, I tend to agree. Look at the Cincinnati Reds. Look, I, I'm still not convinced that they are going to win this division, but I definitely think them and Milwaukee are better than you, and you've dug yourself such a hole that I, I just have a tough time Frankly, Pittsburgh proved in. that they're better than you because yeah, you haven't beaten them in a series yet. Yeah, but I wouldn't buy into Pittsburgh. They've really struggled since the first month of the year. Beat them I, in three games and then talk to me. I mean, let's be honest. The Cardinals should. when The next time they see them, they should beat them. But yeah. I Because uh, they're like the White Sox essentially now, but worse. I 
I think that the Cardinals' minds should be made that they are sellers this year. And I agree with Katie Wu and what she said to us, where it's not so much giving up on this year. I know that that's what the single would be, but it's to try and help prepare for 2024 because the assets you bring in, maybe you get a solid bullpen arm and one of the returns in your one of your deals at the trade deadline. Maybe you bring in prospects that you later flip in the offseason to help improve the 2024 team or just provide more depth to your minor league system. As we talked about, there's no real solid pitching prospect in or not prospect. There's not enough pitching in AAA right now for the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, it feels like ready. the pitching pipeline is weak right now. It's A and AA, which means you're still probably at least two years away yeah. from them being in your rotation. So I, I can't I, I think the Cardinals mind is made up. I, I think all the talking points is more so from the players and the managers uh and the coaching staff because they're gonna they're gonna say, look, we're trying to compete. We still believe we can get back into this. The front office is the one that's gonna have to make the hard decisions. And and my gut tells me Mo believes that they are sellers. But with that being said, I, I can't remember who it was that told us, but it's been a couple weeks now. Someone told us the Cardinals don't sell. And, and well, yeah, because typically that admits I agree failure. With that. I don't think it admits failure as much as it just says things went off track for like one year. Now, if it happens again next year, then yes, I agree. But I, I think this is more just a blip on the radar right now for the St. Louis Cardinals because they do have the pieces to win. Just for whatever reason, it's gone awry. The rotation hasn't come together like we thought, and we talked about that earlier in the show. But I, I think when you look at the way they're going to have to approach this, they have to know that they are sellers right now because they can start having the conversations at the MLB draft with other teams and other executives trying to figure out how they're going to get this thing figured out. That way they can start uh, scouting out prospects that they want from any hall that they may get for a Montgomery or a Jack Flaherty. I can't see them buying unless it is like adding a cost-controllable pitcher, but I definitely think they are going to be sellers. I, I, I just have a tough time seeing where they can look at the division, though it is the worst in the NL, and say, yeah, we can still win this thing. I, I just don't see it. That's There's no in-between here. You either go for it or you sell off everything. There's no, well, we're going to keep on, like, we're going to hold on to this piece because we think we're alive, but we're going to sell this well, piece. What, what do you mean by that? Because when you say sell off everything, I, I think sell off Goldie, sell off uh, potentially Arenado, definitely moving all the no, free agents. Uh, sell off everything that results in a seller at a deadline. And by that, I'm not talking Goldie because you are trying to compete next year. But I'm not holding on to Jordan Montgomery. I'm not holding on to Jack Flaherty. I'm not holding on to any of my bullpen pieces. And frankly, if teams are interested in some of my bats that aren't Goldie and Arenado and Walker, the core pieces that you're building upon. So if teams are interested in a Tommy Edmond or a Brendan Donovan or a Lars Newpar, if the trade makes me better for 2024, then I'm pulling the trigger. But any of my guys that are not in the blueprint for next year, are not on my team come August 1st. And frankly, if they're calling me and want to make a deal after the All-Star break, let's talk. Because there's nothing that's going to change between now and August 1st. Sure, let's say you go on a 13-game win streak, but that's also dependent on Cincinnati finding ways to lose a lot of games. And right now, they don't look like a team that's losing. So you're not only trying to up yourself but you're trying to catch up with three teams ahead of you. And guess what? Yeah, you got to start with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's the team you got to start with. Then Milwaukee, then you get to Cincinnati. But that's three teams you're trying to beat in less than half of a season. So this Or you forgot the Cubs in there too. I completely forgot about the Cubs too. There's there's none of this in between of, well, we still believe that we've got a shot at the NL Central. So, you know what? Let's keep Jordan Montgomery because maybe I can convince myself that I could re-sign him in the offseason. No. 
If I want a chance to do that, let's go into the offseason when he's a free agent. But now I want the best return possible for all of my assets. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think you're definitely listening on all those assets that, you, like you said, aren't in your plan for 2024. And I think most of the free agents are in that conversation except maybe Montgomery. And that's why I will put one little like caveat on Montgomery at the deadline here. If you don't think you're getting the trade value that you are seeking for Montgomery, I could see where they potentially hold on to him. And what they do is they then apply the qualifying offer on him in the offseason. And then it's like, I don't want to say it's the best of both worlds because you potentially miss out on a decent haul for trading him. But it could be the best of both worlds because if he signs the qualifying offer, all right, you've got Michaelis, Madsen, Montgomery locked up in your rotation. And Montgomery's been really good. And he's back on a one-year deal with the St. Louis Cardinals. But if he doesn't, and he goes signs elsewhere, you get a pick in the second round or comp A, B. Can't remember exactly yeah, how it works, but the you, know, you get another draft draft pick that teams will value. So I I think, and the Cardinals have hit on draft picks like that in the past as well. So he's the only guy that I would put like. There's a small caveat, and I think there's a chance that he could be on this team post deadline. But I think if you're admitting your sellers, I think you're right. You got to look to move Flaherty. You got to look to move Jordan Hicks for sure. For sure, those are the two guys that definitely should get decent return for. Got to listen to Gio. Got to listen on Helsley. But it doesn't sound like he's going to be available past the by the time you get he to might the not deadline. Be healthy enough. But you definitely listen on Giovanni Gallegos. You definitely listen on Paul DeYoung, who's had a bounce Absolutely. back year, and you could still potentially get something for him because somebody could use his bat, whether it be on the bench or if they need him to start at shortstop, like the Cardinals have done. He could be a guy that could provide an instant boost to an offense in like the 7-8 hole. And I'm not afraid to listen on guys that I want to be a part of my core, but guess what? If my team's improving via the draft with the Donovans and the Edmonds and the and the Newpars and the Carlsons, if I'm improving that trade, I'm going to listen on it. I, you just can't afford to capitalize on this, this trade deadline to jumpstart your offseason. If you believe that 2024 is still a winning window for you, and if you're keeping Goldie and Arenado, you're stating that it's a winning window for you. But if you go into this in the middle of the road and think you can still catch the Reds, you're going to have a bad deadline, which means you're not going to have answers in the offseason, which means you're going to be doing the exact same thing next year. And I don't know if the Cardinals can handle doing that again, because now you're fading away from your winning window because Arenado and Goldie continue to age. And, and I want to answer this quick question from the 636. Instead of trading Montgomery, why not build a staff around him? And the reason for it is because I don't want to build a staff around a number two. I want to build a staff around an ace. Look, he's if, been if, here for one and a half years, and it hasn't gotten me anything. Now, but with that being said, if Montgomery decided to say or stay, excuse me, if he decided to stay and like you gave him the qualifying offer and he took it or you re-signed him in the offseason, that's fine. I'm not saying like yeah. you just completely shake his hand and say good riddance to Jordan Montgomery, but he's not the guy you're building this rotation around. Mm-hmm. Frankly, they don't have the guy they're building the rotation around because they don't have an ace Look, in the rotation you, right now. You chose Michaelis over Montgomery in the offseason. And to me, that stated where they were going with it. And I don't believe you're going back to the Montgomery train because... You, because frankly, I don't know if you're going to spend that amount of money on both of those guys and then them still believe that maybe they got a chance at bringing in Jack Flaherty. But now that his stock continues to rise, I don't think you can hold on to that player because of what the return could be. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the return is nothing for Jordan Montgomery. And you do say, look, we just couldn't find the right assets in a trade. So we said, let's keep them and see if we can re-sign them. But you need to be blunt about that and honest and straightforward rather than just say, no, we felt like we wanted to keep Jordan Montgomery so we can compete because that's a lie to yourselves and that's a lie to the fan base. Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. 
to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. All right, alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario as we dive into the junk drawer here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. By the way, you can head over to our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL and you can click on the BK and Ferrario live stream. And as always, you can text us on our air comfort service text line 314-399-9646. Fellas, I did it. Did what? I did it. I put together my kids' playground set. Oh, wow, that is I impressive. completed a task that I thought was going to be impossible. How many business days did that take? Oh, God. Well, first of all, shout out to my dad and my cousin because they helped a lot because that is not a one-man thing. I would. When did I say I was going to put it together? Probably like three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Well, and Has you had an injury, and I had an injury. It's been a while. Non related to that. Non related. That was a brisket injury. We've talked about that. I don't need to bring that one back up. I would say it probably took like the days that we worked on it, probably about four days, maybe five days. But you also got to understand, like we started and we stopped and we started and we stopped. So there wasn't like a consistent start to finish. And yes, I did have an injury, lost a finger that I could use. So that made things challenging. But let me tell you, I'm sure people listening have put together Ikea things before. This is like night and day worse than Ikea. Like at least Ikea, it's less pieces. I, we got this playground set. My parents bought it for my daughters, and I thought, like, it, it's it's a bigger one. It's got a swing. It's got a slide. It's got a little bit of a clubhouse. It's got a rock wall and ladder, so it's a nice playground set. I thought it was going to be a lot of pieces, but I'm like, it can't be that bad. Anytime you say to yourself, it can't be that bad, oh, it's bad. So it got delivered, and I posted it on my social media so people saw it. It was three boxes of just wood. Mm. This there, it was just pieces of lumber, and it was essentially like put it together. The instruction manual. We started it. Had to we had to stop because we put it backwards. Oh, <laughs> had to undo it, put it back together, and then once we started to build on top of it, it just got harder and harder and harder because you're not only like putting the pieces together because it's a tower. But now you have to like get a ladder and put pieces at the top of this tower. It became a nightmare. So when we got it put together, we they were going to charge seven hundred and fifty dollars to install it. How much did the playground cost? It was like fifteen hundred. Playground sets are expensive, people. Damn. Like very expensive. But they so they're like, we'll do it seven hundred fifty dollars. I'm like, I am not paying nearly. I mean, they would have knocked it out in one day. No, he said it will take us about three days to do. Well, then okay, never mind. You guys were efficient then. But that's why it's like I weighed the 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 differences, the pros and cons of like, okay, look, I can spend seven hundred and fifty dollars and not have to worry about it and let somebody else do it. But they said it was going to take just the same amount of time that I thought it was going to take me. But they're also like, oh, and you know, just so you know. You got to be aware that we might strip some wood because that's just how it goes. And if we do, we'll have to wait for more parts. So I thought to myself, why would I pay somebody to do what I'm going to do and them ruin it? So I just chose to do it myself. And I only stripped like two pieces of wood. So oh, nice. Probably about the same they would have done. But now it's 
Is it bad that I put it together, confident in myself, but every time my daughter climbs up on top of it, scared the hell out of me because it like creaks, like you know, it's like, oh, I'm just waiting for this thing to collapse. Three one four does ask a good question. This might go into why you're scared of uh, having your daughters walk on this playset. How many extra pieces are there? Like, did you go no with, extra pieces of wood, a lot of extra screws ooh, and bolts. Okay. But I think that's because they like add extras if you lose some I or think. if it strips the screw. I think I put all of the screws into the places that needed to go. I uh, so I just put together. I I recently bought a definitely not a playground set. That'd be weird on my patio, but uh, yeah, it makes I, sense for you. Well, yeah, it would be fun. Nice to get a swing every once in a while. True. Gosh, there's nothing <laughs> like swinging. Um, but I. I, I recently that bu- for me, I, re- <laughs> I recently bought a kind of like a bar height like outdoor table for my patio, and when I put it together, I I don't know if I missed something. Like I, I struggled to put this little thing together, but I had literally just one screw left, and like I don't think they just give you one spare screw. So I think I'm definitely missing a screw, and I'm waiting for the time where I go to set down my plate full of hot dogs and boom there goes the table and there go just perfectly fine hot dogs down to the garbage disposal. I'm telling you you're right though like there were a lot of screws and bolts left over but like again I followed this page by page of the instructions I would assume if there's a lot then you're yeah. good. All now, the if holes are like filled one I'd go oh boy. All the holes are filled on this playground set but I did the, the, the weight test on it so like before my daughter got on it I stood on the, the little tower so, I mean, that held about 180 pounds. I'm like, all right, so that's good. Creaked still, very nervous. And then I did the swing. <laughs> I promise you, when I sat on the swing, I was waiting for the whole thing. You know those, like, comedy movies where you sit on it and yeah. it crumbles into yeah. debris? So I sat on the swing and, you know, like, holding my weight, like my feet on the ground, and I'm slowly sitting on it. When I sat down that first time and took a swing, it did make the... I'm like, oh, son of a... It's going to break on me, but it didn't. And my daughters are more than thrilled. And I I feel accomplished. I was about to say, how much time have they spent on the place? Oh, my God. Yesterday, my daughter, oldest daughter, Adelaide, uh, she was outside for a good hour and a half. Okay, that's good. All she did is climb it, slide down, climb it, slide down, climb it, slide down. So I felt accomplished. Because, like, imagine they were only on it for, like, five minutes. They're like, oh, this is cool. Went back inside. She'd be pissed. I'd be so pissed. No, 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 no. (laughs) They will be forced to stay on that thing. Do you believe that BK could have done what I did? No. Not, yeah, we should knock him while he's down. He's not on as quickly. Leave. Well, is he down or is he up? He's up, but I don't want to knock him back down. Oh, I'll knock him back down. Yeah, no, I'll knock him back down. There's no way you could do that. No chance. At least not that fast. I mean, to be no fair, shot. I can barely put together a table. So there's no chance <laughs> to, I could do it. Too. To be fair, Tanner did struggle to plug in an Ethernet cord in his. No, no, I got that. I got that one. That's easy. Well, you want to? If you want to see my playground set. Now, I tweeted it at Ferrari 101 ESPN. Everything that I have tried to build that I bought for the apartment, I always have to restart because I always put it on backwards first. That happened with the grill. Oh, my God. That happened with the yeah. table the, in the apartment. It was the frame of the tower, and we put it together. And again, it's like Ikea where, like, they say, notice where the bolt holes are so you know it's facing the right way. And, like, we looked at it. I mean, I examined yeah, I this thing like that. a freaking doctor. And then we put it up, and we're like, no, this isn't right. See, for me in that situation, when I realized that I put it on backwards, I would just be like, you know what? Quit. I'll start this tomorrow. I'm I, done for the day. I knew I couldn't do that, though, because I wouldn't start it until I restarted it. So, But it's done, and my daughters are happy, and I feel accomplished, even though I still might not be 100% sturdy enough. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next on BK and Ferrario.
we talked with Katie Wu earlier about the Futures game where two Cardinals prospects had themselves a really successful day. But there was another area that came away from that all or that uh, Futures game that we probably need to start talking more about. So we'll get into all that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So even though the Cardinals were in action over the weekend, uh, the Futures game for the Cardinals, a very intriguing game as well. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Tink Henson, Victor Scott II, two players that were in action for this Futures game and an area that Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn were a part of last year. It's where you get an opportunity to see these guys go up against some of the other greats for teams' prospect systems. You get to see the future. Come on, I know you. Would I wanted to get that. no. I wanted to give that a good five seconds of yeah. silence because that's great. <laughs> basically, Tanner just finished all, himself on that dad. Hey, all, all, all you dads kids, out there like it. Have a couple of kids and work on those dad jokes. We'll no, see how I, good BKs are when he comes back. I think that one was good. No, okay. it was not good. I definitely cannot handle another. Oh man, another I, one of you doing. Dad I like jokes. write them down every weekend so I have them just in case. But anyway, before Tanner ruined this segment with his terrible joke, tell me about the future. Tink Hens and Victor Scott. They are the future, Tanner. Tink Hentz, potentially a future top end of your rotation arm. And Victor Scott, maybe a guy that a lot of people haven't heard of when it comes to Cardinals outfielders. So Victor Scott, who's playing in double-A currently, he goes one for two with a single, a single and stole a base. His second, uh, The second base stolen was in the third inning. And then you had Tink Hentz who pitched one inning, gave up a hit, a walk, and it picked up a strikeout. Having those two guys on that stage, and you asked Katie Wu a really intriguing question because Walker and Wynn had themselves a really good futures game last year. Walker's here, Wynn's on the way. Could Hentz and Victor Scott be on the way? And if anything, you're probably going to slow play these guys, but you've got Speed and Victor Scott, who is one of the leaders in double-A in terms of stolen bases, and Tink Hentz, who was just promoted to double-A. This at least gives you some hope with the incoming help for the Cardinals in the next couple of years and why they believe this is a winning window. Yeah, look, I, both these guys really impressive. I mean, you mentioned Victor Scott, one for two, two stolen bases, stole second and third, and then also Tink Hens, who was really effective, and really his stuff looked great. And, and you saw that at times in uh, spring training when he was with the Cardinals, wasn't there very long. But he's got an electric fastball, the changeup was really good, and the curveball looked solid as well in his one inning of work at the Futures game. And... I asked that question to Katie because I I don't think either one of these guys will be with the Major League Club because unlike last year, both Walker and Wynn, they played the full year in AA. And as you just mentioned, both of them, both Victor Scott II and Tinkins, just got promoted to AA. They might be on the same trajectory as Mason Wynn was, where next year you get a full year at AAA, and then the next year you're talking about them being a part of the team. Yeah, I I think they're both probably another year away, I would say. but. I think Mo has said this before, and a lot of GMs do say this. You know, once you're in Double A, you're just a phone call away from getting to the majors. So if Victor Scott the second comes out and has a great spring training. There is a chance he could potentially be up the, with the big league club next year in an outfield that has a lot of question marks with it. 
<clears throat> we were just talking about a center fielder. About what, do they need an everyday center fielder? Well, Victor Scott could potentially be that guy. So yeah, but they need one who can actually hit at the major league level. Also, well, um, and yeah, and we'll see how his bat translates. But he's hitting two eighty two between high A and double A right now, and two seventy eight in double A right now. But I. I, I was really impressed with both of these guys, and it also reminded me with Tink Hintz watching him pitch. Man, he is the hope for them. We, we've talked all year long about the Cardinals having to find an ace and what happens if they can't find find an ace, whether it's unwillingness to spend money on it in free agency, maybe don't view any of those free agents as an ace, can't find a way to trade for one because the price is too hefty or there's just not one on the market that they view makes a significant difference then you have to develop that guy. And Tinkins is the Cardinals' hope to be that guy. I'm, I'm telling you, his stuff is great. And watching him pitch and hearing them talk about him on the game, it, it just reminded me that they've got to take their time with Tinkins. They can't rush him because of a need in the rotation this year or next year. They've got to let him get his seasoning in double-A, and then let him get a seasoning in triple-A. Don't rush these guys, and, and that's what they are kind of doing right now with McGreevy and Graceffo, but I think Hintz's ceiling is even higher than those guys, and that's why they just have to be really careful and make sure they take their time in developing him because he is their hope to be an ace in the rotation for years to come once he gets up to the big leagues. So you're saying they shouldn't tinker with their young prospects? You're right, Grant. That was incredible. Just don't laugh at that, Grant. Grant knew that one was incredible. Here's, there's, that one was really good. Man, I'm proud of myself. Another thing from that Futures game that should be talked about, not by Cardinals fans, but baseball fans, was the automatic ball strike system that they used. And Derek Gould had a really good piece uh, in the Post-Dispatch talking about it over the weekend. And I loved the way that they framed the situation. And for those that don't know, ABS is essentially the robotic umpires to where if you're challenging a strike, basically the batter raises his hand, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, T-Bone, and when they do, they'll basically put up on the big screen at the game the ball strike system and shows where the ball landed and will basically confirm or deny if it was a ball or a strike. And that's what happened to Victor Scott in the Futures game. It resulted in it actually being a strike, and so he was out, but... What Victor Scott told Derek Gould and kind of framed the situation was everybody was a part of it in the stadium. Everybody found out together rather than waiting for the umpire to call down. And then, of course, you can't argue ball strikes with the umpire. This is something that I didn't see a whole lot of in terms of I didn't watch a whole lot of that Futures game. Just a couple of at-bats for the Cardinals guys. But for the way that they framed it in the piece, it seems like... It it might be more successful than we originally thought, just in terms of the excitement in game action, rather than what it is now. Yeah, this is where baseball is going with this ABS system. Now, if they are going to go exactly the way they did in the futures game, that's left to be desired because we'll see what they end up doing. They could move to a fully automated ball strike zone where the umpires don't even have to call it. But you were right in describing it as it is right now. Umpires basically call the pitch as they see it, and if the, if the team wants to challenge it, whether it be the hitter or the catcher, both sides can challenge. They then throw it up on the big board there, and they basically see it come in through where it was released, see where it lands, and it confirms if it's a ball or a strike. And honestly, I really liked seeing it in action, and I always thought that this would be the way I would prefer it, because it reminds me of, for example, we've got Wimbledon on right now in the studio on the TVs. And tennis uses basically kind of the same replay system where they yeah. see the ball come in, where it hits, and whether or not they, whether it's in or out, they zoom in, the crowd gets to see it, the players get to see it, the umpire gets to see it. And that's where baseball is 
leaning towards. That's the way they went in this game in the Futures game, and I really liked it. Look, there's probably going to be kinks to it that we'll have to figure out, and I think they only got two challenges in it. I think you probably would get three in a full nine-inning game because they just played seven innings for the Futures game, but but I, I like it, and if they're going to move to an automated, automated ball strike system, this is the way I prefer they go because I do still want some of that human element where there is an umpire ball behind home plate still calling balls and strikes, and then it also adds some strategy to the game do i want to burn my challenge here in the first inning because if i if we only get three then if i'm wrong we just burnt one in the first inning when we could use those later on down the road so i was i i thought i would like this but i was even more impressed when i got to see it in the futures game this is where baseball needs to go it seemed like it was pretty flawless too and again there are going to be kinks with it but it seemed just in terms of the transition to raising your hand at the bay at the plate because you didn't think it was a strike and they called you on the strikeout and it goes up on the screen everybody sees it confirms that you walk back to the dugout it seems to move pretty pretty flawlessly which if that's the case that puts more excitement into those games. So you're, there's not that waiting around period for fans. And again, from Derek Gould's piece, it seemed like everybody in that stadium was just as curious as Victor Scott was, which I think is a good thing if you're trying to do this for baseball. Yeah, and again, it reminds me so much of the way the tennis one works, and you can see in a tennis match how the fans kind of react to it because if it's close, and especially if it's in a like one-run game in the ninth inning, and you've got a closer pitching with, say, the base is loaded, 3-2 pitch comes in, the umpire calls ball four, and then you get to see it happen on the big screen of here comes the pitch in, and it's actually a strike and the game ends. Like, there there can be excitement around it, and I, I love it. I If they're going to go to it, I prefer they go to this kind of ABS system because I, I really do like this and having fans being able to see where it is rather than just everything is robotic and robots call the strike zone. I still want some human element in it. He's Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. If you've got a bet it or forget it scenario for us, text it at our Air Comfort Service text line 314-399-9646. Can I call a timeout real quick? No, there's no timeouts allowed. Uh, real quick, I have some breaking news for you, Alex. There's breaking news for me. Your guy, Philip Zadina. Oh my God! Tell me he signed with the Blues. According to Frank Saravalli. tell me he signed with the Blues. A one year. Oh my God! He one point one million dollar oh, contract the with the San Jose Sharks. Oh my! Good I'm for sorry. them. Good no, for them. not good for them. What they not could use good. talent? Not <laughs> they could use talent. Why? You need to be bad for a couple of years. You know, could have used that the Blues. Not for $1.1 million, though. That you was know, not going to happen. I wasn't a fan of this. He got me a idea. little excited, though. When you said breaking news and you had that smirk on your face, Grant, which people can see on our YouTube channel, I thought you I thought you were going to say St. Louis. I thought he was going to announce that uh, Nolan Arnato's hitting fifth for the NL in the All-Star game. I thought he was going to announce that Zach Gallen was the starter for the All-Star game. Oh. So a lot of breaking news for everybody that you just heard here on BK and Ferrario. We'll play Bet It or Forget It next on 101 ESPN. <laughs> to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Train Heating and Cooling. Visit traininfo.com. It's hard to stop a train. I imagine that looks great on our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL. Tanner Hendrickson. I'm going to try that one again. Tanner Hendrickson. 
Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. It is time. Mushmouth <laughs> over here. It is time for Bet It or Forget It here on 101 ESPN, where you send us your scenario 314 399 9646 to our Air Comfort Service text line. Can I pass along a little news real quick? Sure. Let I, me promote just, the YouTube channel I'm first. Sorry, but Darn I couldn't it. help myself at 101 ESPN STL on YouTube. I just steal John my Denton. job. John Denton just tweeted out because the Cardinals just made another selection in the third round. Did the Cardinals select or, uh, the Blues sign Philip Sedina? No. Oh, okay. The Cardinals have selected from Boston College outfielder Travis Honeyman. Jesus, why are we why are we drafting more outfielders? Well, have you seen our outfielders? I have. Good. Have you seen our pitchers? Yeah, they're fine. Oh, are they? Yeah. yeah are you good with that, huh? Yeah. All right. Wait, still give it time. There could be a run on pitch. There could be a run on pitching. But here, I'll do my better forget right now. Better forget it. St. Louis Cardinals, I think they go to round 10 today, will select four pitchers in, at minimum, four pitchers by the end of the day. What is this? Round three through 55? Ten. There are only 10 rounds in the draft. I thought there was like. Well, no, there's only 10 up to 10 today. Then they go to 20 tomorrow. It's amazing how many rounds that they do in the draft. Uh, yeah, I'll bet it because you're, I mean, you get. 10 freaking rounds, so of course you're going to do. How about this one? Bet it or forget it. The Cardinals select more position players than pitchers by the end of the draft. Uh, I will forget that. I, I still think there's going to be a run on pitching for the Cardinals. I, I think I think right now, the way they view it would be my guess, is that they're looking at it going, okay, let's go with the best available player in general right now. And they apparently viewed this kid as being one of the best players on the board at their selection spot. Where it gets interesting is once you get kind of into like rounds, probably four or five, somewhere in that range, then I can see where they look at it and go, okay, now we got to start looking at some high upside pitching here because we do need to refill the minor league system. Or, and hear me out, the better picks go to the pitchers. I don't get what you're saying, so I don't understand your whole reaction. Your one through four pick should have been pitchers, and then you find I, the best available no, offensive I, I talent. Think, I think Katie said it right. I think right now you're drafting the best player overall because I, I don't think you reaching on pitching is a, would be a concern for me because pitching is such a tough thing to develop in Major League Baseball. So I would not Cardinals wa- know that. I would not want to reach on anybody that you think. For example, they picked what was it, twenty first overall in the first round. Based on whatever their board may have said, they may have looked at it and said, okay, one of these arms we view as like late first-round talent. Well, we view this outfielder as probably shouldn't even be here for us. Yeah, So I, I don't view it as they had to draft a pitcher. They're going to select pitchers. I don't expect a 20-round draft where they're not going to take a pitcher. <laughs> Boy, that, that would be wild. <laughs> that would be insane. <laughs> Frankly, I was shocked to think it was four years ago where the Angels went 20 picks and selected all pitchers, yeah. which was just crazy. <laughs> That's when you know you're desperate for so something. I, I don't I don't think it's going to be like that, but they're going to draft pitching. I, I just think right now with their first two picks, they said, you know what, these two players, we can't pass up on them. They're not going to be available when we get back to our spot. So let's go for these guys. And like, let's be honest, the outfield is still very much a question mark for the St. Louis Cardinals. It's better to forget it here on BKN Ferrario. So I've got one for you guys. Better to forget it sticking with the MLB draft. Bet it or forget it. The Major League Baseball draft will soon involve trading picks. Did you guys read this article over the weekend that they were talking about how it's been discussed of the ability to trade like first round picks like basically every other sport does in the draft? I, I, I bet this one because I would be intrigued and I think it makes the trade deadline that much more interesting if you have the ability to trade draft picks. Now, 
they're going to have to tighten things up because trading a 19th round draft pick is kind of boring. But maybe the ability to trade like rounds one through five, I think that would create a little bit more anticipation of the deadline. Yeah, I'm going to forget this. I I don't want to see Major League Baseball move to where there are um, the trading of draft picks because I I think it's just going to encourage these small market teams to do more tanking, if you can even say that, because they tank a lot already. But I I, I don't like the idea of trading draft picks because I think a lot of small market teams will really look to stockpile those because they know that's where they can get the cost control talent rather than being willing to spend some money on the free agent market. I, I like how the trade deadline works now where you can trade trade away international draft uh, slots if you have or draft money. I can't remember exactly how it works, but in prospects. I, I don't think you need to add in draft picks. I, I think it works fine the way it is in Major League Baseball. I would bet it. I think if you're a team, you should be able to build however you want to, and if that includes trading draft picks or trading for draft picks, then... I'm all in on it. Hell I think yes. it's I think it's kind of dumb to not be able to have an asset like a draft pick and the league tell you that you can't trade it. Like that's your draft pick. You should be able to do what you want with it. That's how I look at it. Yeah, and I think it it creates the intrigue for that season to where and and again you have to tighten it up because like nobody cares about the 18th round draft pick, but it, like first round picks if you're trading those, one it creates a little bit more stock in the trade market, and two. That fan base can kind of pay attention to that other team to see where they fall. I don't know. It, it, it's definitely an interesting dynamic if they decide to go down that path. Grant, what do you got for better or forget it? All right. So for the Blues, upcoming season, both Zachary Dean and Zachary Bolduc play at least 15 games with the Blues this season. Oh, I'll bet this one. Because injuries will take place. I think Bolduc's opportunity is going to come when slash if injuries happen to Cairo or Verana goal scorers that's where the bold duke will get the opportunity and then you look at the centerman position if something happens to one of those individuals or if he beats out some guys you'll get 15 games from Zach Dean I think both of those guys will be getting close to 15 to 20 games this upcoming season I might bet this one too I, I don't think either breaks camp with the Blues but I could see because of injury where you could see Dean get kind of a trial trial run if you want to call it that same with Bolduke and especially if they end up falling out of it and they make moves like trading Verona trading Kapanen I could see where the Blues say all right let's see what we have in Bolduke and Dean so I'll bet this I could see where both of them play 15 games one I kind of hesitated on was Bolduke I I just I could see where Dean definitely gets up here gets a shot and I think he's probably out of those two the most likely to potentially make the team out of camp Bolduc's the one that like really needs a big camp to, and then a big start to the AHL season, which is where he'd go if he, if he uh, doesn't make the team out of camp, for him to get up here as one of those guys that's like first one to be called up when an injury occurs. I'm with you. I think Zach Dean's going to have a little bit of an easier transition into the NHL. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult for Bolduc. But I think through injuries that they just happen throughout the NHL season, I think eventually Bolduc is going to get his chance. And... Uh, he seems determined. Like he, he's got a fire under him coming into this camp, just based off of the article that Jeremy Rutherford put out earlier today, talking about uh, how he feels after last season's camp that he didn't perform well enough going into this one. Uh, I, I think he's going to play with uh, some fire, and I think it could earn him some games at the NHL level. Couple on our Air Comfort Service text line. Better to forget it. One of these free agents will be a Cardinal next season. 
Lucas Giolito, Aaron Nola, or Michael Waka? I'll bet it. I, I don't think it'll be Waka. I could see Giolito or Nola. I, I think, one, they got to find an ace. Nola could potentially fit that category, even though he's had a down year. I, I do like Giolito, but it just comes down to what they're going to be willing to spend in terms of like kind of that mid-tier market because that's where Giolito will be. He'll be more of a multi-year deal. He'd probably get like a – he could probably get like what John Gray got, I would say, maybe. Four by – I think 44 is what his was, something along those lines. I I wonder if they're going to look for something like that or they'll do more of like, hey, let's go get an ace and then let's sign – and I mentioned this on – I think it was Friday – Let's go get like guys that have a pretty high upside, but it'll be on like one-year deals. Like James Paxson was somebody that I mentioned. Uh, somebody else was Alex Wood. Like guys like that that are high upside, swing and miss stuff. It could go really great on a one-year deal, or it could go really poorly on a one-year deal. So, but I, I'll bet this because I could see where they end up deciding to try and go after Aaron Nola or Lucas Giolito. I could see where one of those two are a Cardinal. I think I'm gonna forget it. Just because... Because you know how the Cardinals operate. Yeah. Like, going Smart into man. the offseason, that's going to be my expectation so that I don't disappoint myself. That's sort of how I operate, <laughs> especially with this team in free agency. So, yeah, I'll, I'll forget it. I'll bet this one because I, I could see Lucas Giolito being the guy that they target. And my concern is they target Lucas Giolito to be a higher type of pitcher than what he's supposed to be. Like, you go after him as he's going to be your number two, and he pans out to be like a number four. But I'll bet it that one of those three, because I do believe Nola or Giolito will be one of the guys that they go after heavily in the offseason. Frankly, I think they're going to have to uh, go heavy after them in the offseason. Final one, bet it or forget it from the 636. If the Blues defense ranks middle of the pack in goals against this season, they make the playoffs. Oh, bet it. I think this is a simple one, right? I mean, you, middle of the pack, you're in. I'd, I'd bet it too, because they should. I don't know if they'll be like top offense or top five but they sh- they've got plenty of goal scoring to yeah. where if the defense is just average and you and, and my assumption and maybe this is just my view on the defense if they're middle of the pack and goals allowed is probably because Bennington helped carry that as well Bennington and Huso or not Huso excuse me Hofer man I miss Huso. living in the past apparently. I miss Huso. hey buddy Bennington was better than Huso but last uh year. that's true um but I I think if they're middle of the pack, yeah, I would bet it. I would say they're a playoff team because they should have the offense that should be able to score them into the postseason. And if the defense takes the next step, I definitely believe that they've got a shot to get in. Speaking of the Blues, it has nothing to do with the defense, but when it comes to depth for St. Louis, is their fourth line going to be strong enough to be an asset this upcoming season? We'll discuss that next on BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. <laughs> to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So there's plenty of areas to preview for the St. Louis Blues coming into their upcoming season. And a lot of them are, of course, top of the mind topics, whether it's the defense, you're talking about what Kevin Hayes can provide. Can some of these prospects make the team? Frankly, it's also the goaltending. The one area that might not be looked at because some people just don't view it as important as it used to be is the fourth line for the St. Louis Blues. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. So Jeremy Rutherford had this in his piece earlier today talking about the depth of the fourth line and if the Blues have enough of it. 
from JR's piece. They brought back forward Mackenzie McEachern in free agency. The 29-year-old was drafted by the Blues, part of their Stanley Cup team, before leaving and signing with Carolina. It provides some depth on the fourth line, but there still are not a lot of quality bodies for those spots. McEachern, Toropchenko, who is still at a restricted free agent as he's filed for arbitration, Nathan Walker, and maybe Sammy Blay if you can see him on that fourth line. But if there are injuries, not a lot to pull from. And he's not wrong, because when you get past those names, then you get into the Bulldukes and Deans. And call me crazy, but Bulldukes not playing on your fourth line. So I would cross that one off. I think Dean's probably there. Nikita Alexandrov is going to be another one of those guys. They have a couple of depth pieces that more than qualified to be in the AHL, but maybe not that NHL. Like I'm thinking of a Will Bitten that plays for Springfield right now. But that's it. And if there's one thing I know Craig Berube loves to have, it's reliable pieces that can provide depth on your fourth line. Because last season, you did not have that. There was a reason that Tyler Pitlick played so many games for St. Louis. Because he was one of the very few reliable forwards that could play there. Frankly, since 2019, you really haven't had reliable players for a fourth line. And again... Some people view fourth lines differently. I would say look at what Vegas just accomplished with one of their more successful lines of a fourth line. You need to have something there. And the way that I look at that fourth line is Torpchenko's going to be on it. If he gets signed, which he will. I believe that you're also going to have Sammy Blay playing on your fourth line just because you have so many forwards. And then you get to the center spot. And that's where you come to Alexandrov, Zachary Dean, Or are you going to the free agency market? And that free agency is probably going to be a player tryout. And if it doesn't work out for the tryouts, then that means somebody stole the position in terms of Alexandrov or a Zach Dean coming out of training camp. And I wouldn't be surprised, too, if they go the route of that PTO because they've done it several times in the past, most recently with Tyler Pitlick, but they did it with James Neal as well. So the Blues aren't afraid to go that route of uh, doing that professional tryout in training camp. I do think a lot of people understate the importance of that fourth line because you look at a guy like Nolachari last year who, when he was signed at free agency, it wasn't a big deal for a lot of fans. Like They weren't super excited, but as he played, he ended up lead, leading the team in block shots last season and hits, yeah. and he was one of the team's best and most consistent players throughout the season. So I think a lot of people look at a fourth line and think, eh, it's just a fourth line. But signing these fourth-line players can be a big deal. And again, we mentioned it earlier, but going back to a guy like Oscar Sundquist, who's still on the market, that could be a big deal if the Blues want to make one more move and it wouldn't break the bank either. It'd be huge to go out and get a guy like Oscar Sundquist, not only for the fourth line, but just in the locker room as well. So I don't think Doug Armstrong is necessarily done with the fourth line. I do think we're going to see a player on that fourth line that isn't currently on the roster this upcoming season. Yeah, I, I think, Army, to your point, I don't know if he's done in terms of adding to the fourth line. I could see where he brings in somebody on a PTO. I don't know if he wants to hand out a like fully guaranteed deal like Sonny, million dollars, maybe a little less than that, depending on what his market looks like. I don't think he wants to do that. I think he wants to get Torp under contract whenever they settle this in with the RFA status and then be done and maybe save a little bit of cap room left over as well because right now they've got about $2 million. You say Torp Tangle makes a million, just round it to that nice even number for us. 
there's about a million dollars left. I think he'd like to have some wiggle room once he gets into the season in case of injuries and anything that may pop up down the line for the St. Louis Blues. So with that being said, I do think he could add a PTO. But even if he didn't, I, I understand there's not a lot of depth here, but I I think I would be fine with what the Blues have right now on the fourth line. I don't, I don't think they necessarily have to go out there and add somebody. And I understand what you're saying of like, you don't really want to put Bolduc on a fourth line. Maybe Dean, you don't want to rush them up here. But if they had to come up here and play just a couple of games kind of in emergency situation, I think the Blues would be fine with playing those guys. And it just gives them a sip of coffee at the NHL level, which I think is a good thing for those guys to get, even if it means they're not here for the long haul this season. If you're going to do that, though, you need more of a veteran presence on the fourth line. And that's where I'm at with this, because if I look at it, just plotting out what your lines look like, you're talking about Sammy Blay more than likely on a fourth line just because it's Kapanen and Verana, all the guys that you've got playing top nine forward. Blay would be considered a veteran, but he's also younger, if that makes sense. Torpchenko is still considered a young player, and then we're talking Alexandrov or Zach Dean because I don't know if Nathan Walker is an everyday fourth liner for you. That's a lot of youth. That's where the Oscar Sundquist thing comes into play for me because that's experience. You're going to want somebody who can provide that on a line that you're going to be trying to get some reps for. But again, if you sign Sundquist, who else is in playing there? Because McEachern is on this roster and you signed him to be a part of this. So is he not getting the opportunities? Is Nathan Walker pushed out? That's really the pull and take with all, or the give and pull with all of this. The other guy that we haven't even spoke of, and some people might not even know who he is, uh, is this player named Andre Heim, who they signed in the offseason, was playing over in the Swiss League. 25-year-old who's been playing in the Swiss Pro League for a while. Could be another option on that front for the St. Louis Blues. The, the real answer to all of this is you don't have enough depth right now. you got guys but do you have impactful guys? And that's the question that I think Craig Bruby and company are going to have to answer before they exit training camp and start the regular season. And I think that's a fair question to have because if you don't have the guys on the roster right now and you don't have the depth, then, man, that fourth line is going to be brutal this year. Now, yeah. with that being said, I don't view the fourth line as impactful as you guys do. I kind of lean towards our guy BK who, like, man – BK in the fourth line. He Don't get along. Fourth line. Man, he hates the fourth line. So I, I kind of view it in that sense. I do think it is somewhat important, but I, I don't know if it's enough to where you have to go out and sign someone like an Oscar Sundquist to like a fully guaranteed like one one year deal for like a million bucks. But it, that's why I lean towards the side of the PTOs to where I think that's where they'll go. They have had some success with that last year, last year and years prior. That that's what I think they're going to do because look, they probably could use another body back there. And again, if they didn't end up doing it, I, I don't have a big issue if they just said, you know what, we like what we have. Maybe there's someone in the Myers we haven't even mentioned that. The, the, yeah, we're not even talking about that could potentially impact the fourth line as well. So I I think it's something to. Kind of monitor, but I, I wouldn't. I'm not expecting anything big to yeah. happen. Like Grant mentioned, you always get training camp invitees that are going to do the PTOs because it's not just for them, but sometimes the general manager is doing that player or an agent a favor to get some um, some footage of that player for other teams so that they can sign a contract. But sometimes they impress your NHL roster, like Pitlick did, and you made the team out of camp. One more thing I wanted to mention in this is we've talked a lot about Dean and Bolduke. Should we be setting any expectations for these guys going into the season in terms of expecting these guys to be a part of this roster? I, I wouldn't because of the way that Doug Armstrong framed it, but I wonder if there are some people out there that say, like, these guys have to be impactful. Otherwise, why are you 
Why are you, or what are you waiting for for them to take that NHL roster spot? Yeah, my expectation is for them not, not to see them this year. And that's not a shot against Bolduc or Dean. It's just, I don't want to put any expectations and any pressure on those two guys from the St. Louis Blues. If you're up here, it's either one, you earned a spot out of camp, two, we're performing well in the AHL, we got to have you up here, or three, it's injuries. Like, I truly have no expectations for these guys. I mean, we just didn't better forget it. Grant asked a question, better forget it. Dean and Bolduc end up with 15-plus games. And I said, bet it. But that wasn't like they've got to have 15 games from these guys. Ideally, I think both these guys spend a year in the AHL, get some seasoning, and you don't really see them this year because you believe in the depth that you have with your top nine and you don't have to see them. You don't have to force them into that fourth-line role that we just talked about with Zachary Bolduc. So my expectation is I'm not going to see these guys until potentially the 2025 season. Yeah, I I think... 2020, the beginning of 2024 is... 24-25. 24-25, that's what I was trying to say, yeah. No, I agree with you, Tanner. I think expectation-wise, the most you can expect out of these players this season, at least for me, is when the injuries happen and they get their opportunity to come up, play solid, just don't be a liability. Like That would be the expectations for these players coming in if there are injuries. The expectation shouldn't be for these players to make it out of camp, and if they do... That means they've impressed big time and they're ahead of what really the front office would have thought that they would be. So anything ahead of that would just be like found change. Expectation is Hall of Famers. And anything less than that, then you both are just dumb. Sorry to say it. You are. Hall of Famers. All right, hole and oats. Calm down over there. (laughs) That's that's when Dalibor Dvorsky comes in. Damn Damn right it is. Doug Gilmore, that's what I would say with that one. Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll come back with the rewind and your chance to win Cardinals Bud Bash tickets next on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. your chance to win a four-pack of tickets to next Tuesday night's Budweiser Bash for Cardinals versus Marlins. Uh, next week's Bud Bash features a limited edition. How about this? Brad Thompson bobblehead. Wow. BT bobblehead. So you text in now if you're texter 101 at 314-399-9646. And you can tell me how many days it took me to put together that playground set that we talked about in the junk drawer. You text in that and your texter 101, and you're going to win Budweiser Bash tickets for Cardinals versus Marlins. You get all the details on the season series of Budweiser Bash Cardinals games at cardinals.com slash promotions. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, Alex Ferrario. So we're closing things down on BK and Ferrario with our rewind. If you missed it, the lineup is out for the NL All-Star game. Here's how it goes down. You got Acuna Jr. batting first, Freddie Friedman, Mookie Betts, uh, Martinez, J.D. Martinez, Nolan Arenado batting fifth, Luisa Rise, Sean Murphy, Corbin Carroll, Orlando Arcia, and then Zach Gallen as your pitcher. 
I got a sneeze coming again. Uh, oh, here, I'll talk and cover for that. Okay, so that All-Star Game lineup, you can't God. a bad All-Star Game lineup. All right, back to you, Alex. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. My gosh, this sneeze. Look, Siri's even telling me to calm the bleep down. Anyway, let's rewind it with what Katie Wu was talking about with us in our uh, chat that we had earlier in the show, which you can go check it out on our podcast page, 101ESPN.com, uh, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. But Katie said that she doesn't believe the Cardinals have convinced themselves that they're sellers yet. And that caught both of us by surprise, T-Bone, because if that's the case and the Cardinals haven't told themselves that they're sellers by August 1st, then there might be more issues for this Cardinals team for the rest of the season because August 1st is the deadline for you to start improving at least at the bare minimum your pitching woes for 2024. Yeah, I I think once you get to the deadline, you've got to be selling off some of your top pieces so you can get in some assets that could potentially either help you down the road as Cardinals or help you in terms of trade talks to potentially throw them into a package to go help you potentially get your ace. So I, I think when you look at the St. Louis Cardinals, I I would be shocked if the front office truly believes that they are not sellers. I, I, th- I don't know how they can convince themselves that they're not and how they can just kind of be unsure of right now because the division, though that is a argument that was fair early on in the year, the Reds have taken off since Ellie De La Cruz has arrived. The Milwaukee Brewers are playing better baseball now and continuing to fight with Cincinnati. Like Those are clearly the two best teams in the division. And it's not like you're just five games out. If you were five games out, I would be saying, you know what, hold Pat, see what happens over the next yeah. like two weeks. You're 10, 10 and a half or 11 and a half back in the division. So I, I think it's been made at 11 and a half. I think the decision's been made for them. They did not take off like they have been expecting. They still have pitching woes that they just are not going to overcome this year. Defensively, they've been bad, and the bullpen's not very good. So I think they are. I think you can define the St. Louis Cardinals right now, today, on July 10th, before we even have the All Star game or any of the All Star game festivities, as sellers. But the other part of that, too, is you've got at least. Three more starts for Jordan Montgomery and Jack Flaherty before the all or before the trade deadline. You would imagine you're going to see multiple outings by Jordan Hicks and Giovanni Gallegos. That stock is just going to continue to rise, and the more demand that teams that believe they're contenders need starting pitching, the higher the return is going to be in terms of price for the Cardinals. Which is why you can't sit there and tell yourself that you're still in this race. You have to know. That one, even if you think you're in this race, it's not going to be good enough because you're going to have to go on a historic run in the second half. And I would much rather take a step back from the scenario, look at it and say, look, we can get some really good returns on these pieces that we've got. And let's start focusing on 2024 to be the year that we build towards a championship. I'm glad you said take a step back and look at look at things, because the one time what we have been critical of Mo in the past about is doing that when they're buyers right. and saying, well, if we hold on to this prospect, we think he can help us two, three years down the road. And it's like, well, okay, why not be willing to part with him to go get more talent to help this team win now? I think if I think he has to have kind of the same mindset now if they're going to go into sell mode, which is, yeah, you're not blowing it up completely. You're getting rid of some of your top free agents to be next year and regain some assets, but take kind of that further out view and look at the 2024 season because I, I think – 2023 at this point. I think it's a blip on the radar. I truly believe that. I think they can get back into contention next year. 
But I, I think this year is worth punting on at this point right now. We'll, we'll talk more about that tomorrow from 11 to 2. Don't forget, you get the Home Run Derby tonight. Coverage starting at 7 o'clock here on 101 ESPN. But stick around because the Fast Lane is coming up next. For Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll talk to you all tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.